Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Sorry about skipping the last week. I was down in Brazil uh, chasing the world record. We didn't have the most awesome weather, so we didn't get that, but had some really nice flying, and it's good to be back and catch them and bring any of these shows. Just got off the phone with Dustin Martin, who uh, many of you will know, legendary hang glider pilot and flies a lot of other stuff, but he set the world record, which still holds back in 2012, beat out Johnny Durand by a couple K, went 761, I believe, down in Texas, pretty much flew across the state of Texas, which is uh, no small feat and very, very cool. And in this episode, we get into all kinds of really good stuff, finding good lines, working light lift, chasing records, uh, flying RC planes and what that does for paragliding and hang gliding skills. But try to kind of distill what makes him so great on a hang glider and and use a lot of that skill in the paragliding world. Uh, this is super relevant for everybody that flies anything, but yeah, I think you're going to really dig it. Before we get into it, I just wanted to put out a couple little uh, housekeeping items. First, I wanted to say a couple things for a couple of my own personal sponsors. These aren't sponsors of the podcast, and this is always, as always, a listener-supported show. They're not involved with the with this show at all, but I just wanted to give these guys a shout-out because they're doing cool things. The first is uh, a company here, a small company here called Play Hard, Give Back, and Catch Them, uh, run by a father-son team. The Brendels, uh, Jeff and Spencer, they make awesome trail mix. It's just the most amazing stuff and these great kind of energy bars. And that is just terrific. I don't go anywhere without that stuff. So that alone is really cool. But they've also just partnered with a company who for every package of trail mix that they sell, uh, a, a full meal is donated to someone at need. And that's just in the States right now. But it's just, it's a really cool program and a great way to give back. That's what the company is all about. Play hard, give back. Uh, they do all kinds of other great social work and social causes stuff and just awesome to see as all most of you know i'm real involved with patagonia I really dig being involved with companies that are giving back and doing the right thing with the money that they bring in and this is one of them so uh check them out and especially if you're in the states uh you can order it online playhardgiveback.com doing really cool stuff one of these purchases you can feel really good about the other one is on it uh many of you that followed the x house probably saw the big logo on my wing on it that's joe rogan's company you guys will know from comedy and from uh ufc and all kinds of stuff but on it makes you know among other things kettlebells and and ropes and all kinds of stuff for torturing yourself in the gym but they also make really good supplements and my trainer ben abruzzo put me on this stuff about 18 months ago called total primate care they've got a lot of other they've got great stuff great supplements but this total primate care is something that he started taking a while back and noticed that he never got sick after he did and then put me on it because uh after all the years on the boat my immune system's kind of taxed and i i definitely tend to get cold and stuff especially in the winter this time of year and he put me on it because we couldn't really afford me getting sick during training for the x-ops i couldn't afford any downtime and uh it's just amazing so uh check them out too they they're worth taking a look at that's on it onnit.com first heard about them on the tim ferris show uh they make some really cool stuff very progressive cool company making great things and uh worth checking out so check out both those uh spotify playlist and mentioned this in the last show but we are keeping track of all our music we've gotten a lot of requests over the months for uh you know hey what was the music on that one show 
the all of them are now on our playlist, which you can find on Spotify under Cloud Based Cloud Based Mayhem. You can also find those links on our Facebook page, Cloud Based Mayhem, or on the website, cloudbasedmayhem.com. And then we've still got this giveaway going. I'm going to take this on for another month. Uh, I've got the Power Traveler battery, got brand new 2015 X Alps, um, never used, still in the package. But really cool battery. I think it's like 8,000 milliamps. Might be wrong there, but it's close to that. Um, so for bivy flying or for just flying all day, you want to keep your phone going, that's a great little thing. I've also got a Flymaster, an older one, but still works great, B1. And I've got the NOCO 5-watt solar charger. So in my experience, that's not quite enough to power you through a bivy trip, but um, definitely enough to keep your phone going or, you know, for shorter bivy trips, no problem. It's pretty light, nice little unit, kind of like the Goal Zero units. Um, So what we're going to do for those giveaways is for just those of you who pass this around, what this show is all about is kind of spreading knowledge and trying to keep our community safer. So if you put it out on Facebook or Instagram or however you share your stuff, um, just make sure that I know about it. And if you say something crafty or cool or like, hey, man, you got to listen to this, but in a funny, good way, uh, I'll pick it up and you'll be in to win one of those cool things. So appreciate that. Uh, And then finally, social media help. I put that out in one of the previous shows that we could use some social media help for just getting this out in more places, getting the show out in more places. Uh, I've got a few people now on that task in the UK and in Europe. We're still looking for somebody in North America. I think we're pretty covered in Australia, New Zealand, and Asia, but I could use some help just in the, you know, the FB, the Facebook forums or uh, groups and clubs and that kind of thing. There's a lot of them in the States and uh, in Canada, not nearly as many in Europe but is is there are in Europe, but there's a ton and that would be super helpful. So if you can't afford supporting the show financially, you know, as always, all we ask for is a buck show. That's a great way to do it. And I'd really appreciate it. Just reach out to me via email. You can find that on cloudbasedmayhem.com. So yeah, let's get into it. Really cool talk by the current world record holder, 761Ks, uh, Dustin Martin, uh, very good friends with a guy I was just flying with down in Brazil, Jeff Shapiro. And uh, I talked to Jeff before knowing I was going to be talking to Dustin about several things that we bring up in this talk. There's a lot here to glean uh, as PG pilots from these hang gliders that have been doing it for a long time. Uh, Dustin's quite a bit older, younger than me. It's not like he's one of these older pilots, but he's uh, he's been at it a long time. He's been going hard and super passionate about it. You can tell in this talk that he's got a lot of passion and love for this sport. And uh, there's a lot to learn here, a lot to enjoy. So enjoy. Dustin, man, so stoked to get you on the show. I really appreciate this. I know you've been listening to these and uh, we've had many, many requests to get you on here because uh, you're a hang gliding Jedi and we don't talk to enough hang gliders. So yeah, I'm I'm really excited. First of all, I'm, I'm super honored to be on your show and I, I'm a long time listener since the beginning and I, I sit at the sewing machine and, and every time they come out, I'm, I'm uh, pretty much right on it. So um, thanks for that. So Dustin, we... Before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, we're, we're going to talk about your record flight because we have to. We were talking about, you know, some of the cool things you've done. And uh, I brought up Larry Tudor and, and I was saying, you know, like, you know, have there been any flights you've done that have been like his flight when he flew from Dobbs in New Mexico and he and his, his ground support was like, dude, 
uh, turn around, you're in a, you're in a tornado and, and you're like, Oh dude, I, I've been in like five tornadoes. And so I, I'm going to go ahead and assume because, you know, chasing records is rad and, and it's super fun. And, you know, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about your Texas flight, but I'm, I'm going to make the jump and make an assumption that that probably wasn't the best flight you've ever had. Is that, is that correct? That, that's correct. That was not my favorite flight ever. So tell me, yeah, let, let's start it off with a bang before we, we're going to talk about your history and uh, everybody's going to get to know you here, but like, what's, you know, replay your favorite flight or one of one, them. Okay. Well, I'll give you, uh, You've had I'll, a I'll lot. give you one of them. I mean, my, my favorite flight is, is probably not something that would be as entertaining. Um, it was something that was just more meaningful to me at the time, but, uh, you know, I was thinking after we did talk about, um, Larry Tudor flying in, near that tornado. I was thinking, well, you know, I flew, I flew near a tornado that I can't remember what year it was. I think it was 98 or somewhere between 98 and 2000 in Salt Lake city. And I was soaring the South side of the point and it got really dark to my North. It, it really dark, like a black curtain between me and, and, and South Salt Lake. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. And the wind picked up and, you know, it got a little textured. It actually got really good. And I, <clears throat> I stayed up for a while and then it sort of got <laughs> ominous. I mean, it was a little more ominous than usual. And and I had only, by that time, only been flying two or three years. And so I, I flew for a while and then thought, oh, I'll land. And I landed. And then um, somebody came up later and said, man, what were you flying? That was insane. The tornado just completely like wiped out half of Salt Lake City. And like, really? So then, yeah, that, that night on the news, I was, uh, you know, listening to, or I was, I was watching recordings of people in office buildings you know, as, <laughs> as windows were blowing out and they were screaming and I was like, man, what? that was right there. <laughs> Holy crap. So I love that. You're like, Oh, it's kind of ominous. Yeah. I mean, there was a, yeah, it was pretty, it was Salt Lake city. So there was a, there were no expletives, but there was a whole lot of, Oh my hex on the, on the news channel that night. <laughs> and then, so I'm thinking about that. I mean, we, we talked about that and, um, I was thinking, well, was that the only tornado? And, then I realized, well, actually, that that wasn't the only tornado. There was a time, uh, I don't remember when, a few years later, when I was, I was flying up at a sailport in North Phoenix, and it got really ominous again, And I, but I kept flying for a while. I was like, well, I'm just going to keep flying. I've done this before. So I was flying. It got pretty windy. It actually got pretty sweet again. That's kind of like what happens. And then, um, then it was obviously time to land. So I landed just in time for a huge, just like a you know, monumental gust front to come through right after I landed. And, uh, it, it, it turns out a guy in a sailplane died that day. Former Anglater pilot died that day, right about the time I landed, Whoa. maybe or not connected to that gust front. But then same deal, like a couple hours later, yeah, a tornado has just gone through uh, North Phoenix, Arizona. And they, you know, it was 15 miles to the South or whatever. So <clears throat> I was thinking about, you know, is that the only tornado? And it turns out that wasn't the only tornado because I had a, <laughs> Um, <laughs> dude i had a much more oh interesting flight uh yeah so there's there's those two um th then i was thinking oh, i was in georgia at this comp that we had up there and um americus maybe well, yeah i think it was americus we had a really good comp up there but one of the days was was pretty sketchy and we knew it was gonna be sketchy it, it was totally blue and then the clouds started popping and it was just beautiful but we knew from looking at, 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 you know, the, the radar and the live images that it was going to get crazy soon, sooner than later, uh, to the north of us, you know, between Atlanta and us. 
<clears throat> and the weather was, you know, was pushing south hard. And they were like, well, look, we're going to try to get the day off. You've, I'm sure you're familiar with trying to get the day off at a comp. So they're like, yeah, we're going to try to squeeze this in. It's going to get crazy. You know, we know we're not going to have all day to do this. And we know when it does go south, it's going to be really bad. So we're like, all right, we're game. So we all took off. And, uh, you know, everybody tried to take the first start they could get. It was an aerotow comp, so there was a few starts. And we all started heading south and getting pushed by the wind. And it was really light and really scratchy and uh, and really smooth and nice. It was Georgia. So we're over the, you know, we're over these fields. And it had started to shade out by the time we had taken the start. It was pretty good at the start, you know, four or 500 up, clouds around. And then it just shaded over. And it got shaded over by, uh, you know, an anvil <laughs> from from basically Atlanta. I mean, it, like one of those... You know, not your 30,000-foot anvil. It was like a 60,000-foot anvil that was just spreading out over the state. Oh so it, it shaded God. us. But there were still lift and cloud and cumies forming under it. It was, you know, there was energy in the air, even though it was completely shaded. And I've learned that that means that that's that not good. really scary. <laughs> I've learned that if it's shady <laughs> yeah. and you should be gliding to the ground without a beep, then you probably should be on the ground. If you're if you're still in lift, right. so it was really good. It, it, you know, it got it got scratchy for a while, and then suddenly it's like, well, actually, I think this is going to work, and we're in twos and threes, and suddenly four and five hundred up, and it's just fine. But Ooh. it's a little bit it's a little bit you know hazy, a little bit humid. You know, it's humid, so you can't see very far, but you can see it's like black and purple and green and whatever behind you know to the north. It's coming, but I can't really tell. And, I'm, and they have little fires burning. Every, you know, a couple of people have fires burning in, in their fields and their yards. And the smoke's kind of laid over, but it's it's laid over because you know it's there's no real energy down there. It's shaded and and it, this looks like it's blowing ten miles an hour, and it was. So we're drifting, 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 and then it kind of gets a little better. I, I'd say we had like a four or five hundred up, and it, it went from being a couple of us, you know, little disjoined groups, to actually maybe a gaggle of five or six or seven and maybe another half dozen, a little lower. And we went over this town. We were probably 20 miles from the start and uh, finally a good thermal. And we're getting, we're, we're actually going to get to base. It looks good. So there I am. I'm climbing four or 500 feet a minute. <clears throat> and I remember the feeling from uh, a flight I did, I don't know, like in 2000 down here, I, I flew from Phoenix down to the Mexican border and I was flying towards towards a line of, of thunderstorms because they were right on the border. It was monsoon season and I was just going to go as close as I could. I didn't know much at that time about how, you know, how far gust fronts could go from, from the storms and how that, you know, how that would feel and what it would look like. And, but at the time on, on that flight in Arizona, I got, you know, I was gliding in this amazingly smooth air in the shade of an anvil, a similar story. And then I just got smacked by this really, uh, a cold, moist, really sweet-smelling air, um, and I was like, "Oh, I know that that smell. That's what I smell right when I gust front. Usually hits me on the ground, <clears throat> but I had gotten hit in the air, and I knew I was. I mean, I, it took a second, but I realized, you know, that it's kind of the that they hit kind of in a wedge shape. So they, you know, typically they'll they're kind of have a little like the scoop on the front of a train. They they, they hit the ground a little earlier than they do higher up so i already i realized at that point that it was under me already and i just hadn't noticed and so the fact that it hit me now meant i was i was totally screwed but at that time i didn't know so on that arizona flight i spiraled down and landed in it <laughs> and that was stupid 
And I ended up like Ugh. in this riverbed that wasn't quite aligned with the wind, a really deep riverbed. And I, you know, dropped a wing right as I, you know, I wasn't going to flare. I was flying like 30 and 35 miles an hour. And I touched down and dropped the wing and spun around. I had a really big glider. It was kind of out of control. But nothing, nothing happened. That was all fine. But I learned my lesson. So here I am in Georgia. And I get that really humid, nice, cool feeling smack in the face. And I was like, oh, man, because I, oh. I, I was already, I already knew I was like dancing on the line here. I'm like, well, this, you know, I, could, I just need to go away from this thing. And we were getting pushed away from it pretty fast. And I was like, I just need to get, go away from it. And I felt this. I'm like, oh, Jesus. And I looked down and I realized it had snuck up on me again. I just, you know, because there's no dirt. It's Georgia. You can't tell until it's almost there. And I should have, it's a comp. So I just, I was, that's what was going to happen. And that was either going to happen or it wasn't. And it happened and, and I got caught off guard. So then I looked down at that moment. And of course it's the leading edge of it was already miles beyond me and under me. And I was like, Oh Jesus. But it, it was the real deal this time. It was like, Ooh. I would guess 40 miles an hour plus on the ground, really, you know, smooth laminar, but Ooh. you know, there was tall trees and buildings from this town and i was like oh jesus you know i was <clears throat> i was proper and there's a bunch of you in the air i would say there's probably 15 that i could see ar oh around me God. within a mile or two i was i was like Oof. properly terrified at that point so uh <laughs> my you know you and the first reaction that's almost uncontrollable is to straighten out from the thermal and pull in and, and just you just want to go but and i did that and it only took me about half a second to go, uh, I need to stay in this thermal because this it's not going to help me to to go down. I mean, it's just not going to help, especially like, like the beginning of the, the – when the gust front hits always seems to be the worst you, when, when mm. you're on the ground. I mean, it always dissipates at some point. So I thought, ah, uh, I need to – I just here. need to get to base, which is a really hard thing to do when you're looking on the ground. And God, this wasn't like a normal – That's terrifying. You know, I didn't just see trees moving and smoke laying flat i saw a, there was a circle farm that was just dirt just downwind of that town a huge georgia size like I, I i'm gonna guess it was probably uh a solid three-quarter mile you know diameter circle just huge circle of dirt and it it was covered in a fine layer probably 10 foot deep of blowing dust you couldn't see the field anymore you could just see what looked like a roiling it could have been a thousand feet thick or ten feet thick, but I could tell by the trees around that it was ten feet thick, and it was just roiling over this field. I'm like, oh my god, I am. This is not good. So I was like, oh. Jesus. And I started thermal, and I got to, you know, I eventually did get to base. And during that time between between you know deciding to climb and getting to base, I watched a few guys, maybe five or six guys, spiral down in this and and land in that field, and they were. You know, you could just tell that you could look at a glider and tell that it's going fast by just by the way it's moving. And these guys were pulled in and hauling ass and completely stationary over the field. And then right as they get, you know, down to 15 feet, they would just disappear. I'm like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> this is bad. Oh, the, and, you know, they all all those guys ended up fine. I mean, it was it would have been a very high speed backwards landing in a paraglider. It was pretty gnarly, but but they had good terrain. So I was. I was scared because we knew from the reports that morning that this wasn't just a thunderstorm. This was a line of craziness and tornadoes and, you know, we were in tornado alley and we knew what was coming. So I was like, I need to get the hell out of here. And I popped out and basically at that point, just 
Did anybody else do what you did? Uh, were you were you solo now? Did anybody else go up? Or I, did they all ditch it? My memory is not 100% on that, but I'm pretty sure that – I know pilots ended up further than me that day, a couple of pilots, and I know – well, maybe only one or two, and I can't remember anybody exactly with me doing that same thing. I, I can't hmm. – they may have all attempted to land, but I mean I was five or 6,000 feet above the ground, and I could see – you know, 60 foot tall trees moving, shaking violently from a mile above them. It was, it was clear. I didn't, I didn't have to focus on them. I could just see them. I was like, Oh Jesus Christ. So I, you know, I went past that field. I crossed a couple of rivers and, you know, nothing looked at at that point when you're looking at 40 mile an hour wind, suddenly what is flatlands doesn't look so flat anymore. You notice every tree line and every little building. You're like, Oh Jesus. So I kept going and going and I, I basically, even though the race was clearly canceled and over in, in, and over in my mind, I still was like, I need to go as efficiently and quickly as, as race fast as I can possibly make this go as far as I can go until I can't go anymore. And maybe I could outrun it. And I was pretty sure I could outrun the thing, you know, because I, I was just, I'm going to be able to make 25, 30 miles an hour speed plus whatever tailwind I'm in. So I was like, sure, I could outrun it. Mm. And I spent the next probably close to an hour and a half, two hours going as fast as I possibly could, not getting stuck, getting five, six, seven hundreds, uh, you know, getting really good lines, staying at base, running streets, all the while not able to outrun this thing. And <clears throat> I got out into some sunshine, which made me feel safe somehow, but it that didn't mean anything. So I came in and you know, I was Jesus. all the way till about 200 feet above the ground. It was, it was a solid 40 miles an hour. And I was freaking terrified because it's not for us. It's not really about landing backwards. It's about, you know, marginal control, marginal lateral control and, you know, just getting turned and you just can't, you can't get afford to get turned with wind like that. So coming in, it's probably 40. And then just suddenly at, at I don't know, 200 feet or something, I was in some kind of gradient or something and, and it just ratcheted down to maybe 20 miles an hour on the ground. And I had, you know, a turbulent breezy landing, which felt like a midday windy landing and I pulled it off and, and that was that. And I, so basically I outran the meat of it, got picked, you know, it was windy enough that I, I kind of had to pay attention on the ground handling the thing to not get flipped over, but it never got worse. Um, it never, I, I got far enough away that that storm never really – I wasn't in danger of being, like, killed by, by the storm. Uh, but later, just like on all those other flights, the reports were, you know, massive tornadoes moved through south of Atlanta and, you know, whatever, the north of the Americas region and, you know, like, wiped out this and that. And I'm just like, oh, my God, how retarded can I be? It just, it's just like – this is, like, the fourth time. So that – that I mean – if you look at it from a turbulence perspective or, a, uh, you know, if you just couldn't see the atmosphere around you, that flight would have been a great flight. There was nothing out of the ordinary turbulence wise or, you know, mm. besides the wind over the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you didn't know it was so gnarly, it would have been great. Yeah, it would have been awesome. <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. It's just so, – so that's why it was memorable. Uh, you know, it was a really great flight. But uh, it's like, all right, four tornadoes. Oh, the other tornado. That's right. <laughs> so, so oh my that God. was a really cool flight, but I, the only other tornado I can remember. And so I, I, 
you know, when we first talked about this, I, I remember two and I thought, oh yeah, two, that's stupid. I can't believe I've been in the air with two tornadoes. And the, then I quickly realized, oh, there's another one. It turns oh, out. Oh, there's a fourth one. So that means there's probably more and I just can't remember them. But this fourth one was uh, at Quest when I was flying tandems. And it was just a guy that came just he came on kind of a ridiculous day. We thought, well, for sure, we don't even have to cancel. He'll just not show up. He showed up and uh, we did the flight. I mean, it was kind of a skeleton crew. So we're like, yeah, we'll do it. We don't care. We'll fly anything. So we took him up and it was closing in around us in a very serious way and kind of wedging in around us. We're like, oh, we, we might need to spiral down <laughs> and land right now. And we did. And, you know, we pulled it off. We got our 15, 20 minute flight and there was this this one had like bolts of lightning right next to us. This typical, you know, searing light in your eye and full on fear and and that feels really sketchy in in wind. Um, in a tandem, it's it's not quite as bad, but we pulled that off and <clears throat> yeah, I remember that guy. Th- did, did you did you do the Bill Murray like I, I don't think the heavy stuff's coming down for quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hey man, we do this all the time. You know, it's, we're only minutes from the ground at any time. We, you know, we could, and he kept asking, are you sure? Are you sure? But we knew he was game. He wasn't scared. And I was like, yeah, I'm sure. And, you know, we kind of were, but you can't predict. Well, I guess you could predict there would be lightning, but we didn't want to think about that. And we had, that's why we landed really was the lightning. It was just getting kind of out of hand. So, um, yeah, that was my fault and maybe the tow pilot, but, uh, me and her, we, we laughed about it afterwards because he. He tipped us a lot of money. I can't remember what it was. We might have gotten like a $200 tip for that flight. We, we came out just for that one flight. This is no reflection on Quest Air, by the way. I was, I was just being a cowboy or whatever. I, it, it, was, it was a one-off. But uh, yeah, he tipped us a lot of money. I remember we went around the side of the hangar, and it, was, it wasn't like a couple hundreds. It was maybe like in fives and tens, and it was just a stack. We're like, oh, my God. We were laughing at each other, and it got away from us kind of the cash got away from us and it was just ripping through there. Like, you know, same story, same as the other flights blowing like 40 and we're around this, around the rotor of the hangar. And this like, this is just like funnel of money's blowing around and we're laughing our ass off trying to count it. And it's getting away from us. We're like, what the, so yeah, I've, I've, I'm kind of a tornado magnet. Oh, oh, but the whole thing was a tornado that day had, had rolled through a Leesburg. So, you know, 15 miles North of us right at the moment we were in the air. <laughs> Listeners, I, I promise that as this as the show develops here, we will have advice that actually <laughs> don't do this. Thing. You know, if you, if you don't learn it the uh, first time, you'll learn it the fifth time, maybe. <laughs> oh, that is awesome! Oh my god! Okay, so before before we uh, before we started recording, you you also mentioned we could keep talking about tornadoes, but I'm hoping that's, that's near the that's end. That's the only thing I can remember. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> you were talking about uh, some flights you had, or maybe a flight in Ecuador, where uh, you said it would be hard to uh, it would be hard to keep <laughs> to keep the uh, four letter words out of the story. Can we? Can we? Uh, let's do that before we get into your history. All right. I mean, the theme of <laughs> that that competition, by the way, just finished, and Raúl, who was who organized that competition during those days, uh, was, was the winner, and that was like uh, two three days ago. So. That's <clears throat> yeah. That's pretty cool that, that he finally won because the full circle the big yeah, dogs really. weren't down there. I hope he's listening. Um, so yeah, that was those were good times. I mean, around two thousand, uh, maybe five, six, seven, eight, something like that. It was 
really good times. We had uh, the Jeffs come down there. Daniel Velez from Colombia. Um, I went down there, I don't know, seven, eight years in a row, maybe six years, seven years in a row. Uh, Kevin Carter came down there the, f- the first time I went down there. And then, you know, more recently, um, Moyes sent Tom Weisenberger down there. Um, Craig Coomber's been down there. Um, so it's been like super hot contested race. Um, and it just comes down to, you know, that race is really cool to me personally, because it, it comes down to nothing but glider performance and harness cleanliness. There's just no, you know, it's a ridge race. There's no getting around. You can't pull in more to go, to go better. You just, you got what you got when you, when you show up, your preparation is, is what you've got. So, um, after that first year, when Kevin beat me, I was like, man, that's, he just was going better than me. And I felt helpless because it wasn't like I needed to climb better or pick a better line. There's only one line, you know, it's 10 feet from the cliff. That's the line. So yeah, each year I successively was adding things, you know, a little, just more ballast. How much ballast can you possibly launch with and land with safely? And, you know, airfoil, little extruded rubber airfoil covers for the side wires and little carbon fiber bits to cover all the, you know, all the hardware that sticks out in the glider and the airflow and just, you know, crazy helmets that look like time trial bike stuff with visors and, you know, all sorts of textured speed sleeves like they use for swimming and all that. Just, just crazy stuff. So <clears throat> it's interesting to see the performance difference in a really controlled environment like that. But so, yeah, they, <clears throat> it was pretty funny. The Jeffs, find, you know, they came down, Jeff Shapiro and Jeff O'Brien and uh, Craig Coomber all came down maybe three, four years into that into that string of really fun events. It had, it gained some notoriety, and I was like, guys, you got to come down here. And they were they were like, all right, finally, they're like, all right, we're going to come down there. And uh, yeah, it ended up. <clears throat> so, so we were really worried about Craig because Craig is is always been known as amazing on the ridge, like he's unbeatable. So I mean, we all I was nervous. Everybody was nervous, and uh, so those guys were were prepping pretty hard and i mean you know both of them there when it's when it's time to get serious they get serious so you know mm-hmm. they prepped really hard and came down there and were really serious and uh another interesting thing about that is when they came down there that was the that was the origin of the cloud-based foundation was uh, that trip oh wow yeah so they they huh. came down and we sort of toured uh Guayaquil. that's that's where we based out of and flew into because raul lives there and uh we went to some pretty uh, pretty harsh areas, you know, some, some definitely less fortunate spots in a, in a big way. And, you know, they both mm-hmm. saw that and another guy, Ricker was down there and, you know, I don't know if you've heard about Ricker Goldsboro and how, how he helped start that. But yeah, that was sort of the, the initiation of the cloud-based foundation, which is why it, it's, I didn't know yeah. That. So that's cool. that's why it had, um, a big connection to Kanoa and that, that, that school down there. Um, so yeah, we, we'd fly in Waikil for a couple of days and then we go to Kanoa and start practicing on the beach. And <clears throat> yeah, it's pretty funny. Those, it, it, it's kind of a unique spot to fly. It's really smooth air, but the, the, and the launch looks really good too. It's just picture perfect, except for right below. It's got a, a little bit of a concave, a little bit of a hole, a little, yeah, I've heard about yeah, that. a little spot that you got to, you can't believe in 10 miles an hour of wind that it's going to do anything, but it's just amazing. The turbulence right off, you know, on your last step. So I remember telling, you know, Jeff O'Brien, who was at the time in Salt Lake city, flying the point every day in a lot of wind. I was like, you got to watch out for that. 
this little spot and he pretty much was saying like, I got it, bro. Yeah, whatever. I got it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I got it, bro. And uh, there's a picture of him just about dragging the wing while hugging one, one down tube all the way to the side. <laughs> we talked about it later and he's like, man, that was, ex- that, that was pretty much like you said, that was insane. <laughs> And, uh, wow. yeah, yeah every, I heard that part. I heard that spot was tricky. There was, everybody was talking about before the world cup this time that it's, it's a dicey launch. Yeah. It's a little sketchy even for, even for, yeah, for a paraglider, it's hard to get off there too, because you, you basically pull up and I mean, it's like any spot where there's like a steep drop off, you, you pull up and there's not a lot of energy. So you, you got to put quite a bit of energy to get the wing up over your head and right in the power band. I mean, right in the power band, it's, it's just it's almost hard to get the thing up with enough energy and then keep from having the thing. Yeah. Or overflies you so hard that it almost like sucks you off before it plucks you. It's kind of, it's kind of a weird spot. So yeah, we had some, we had some good times and we were definitely, we all had our eyes on Craig and we all wanted to, to beat him. I mean, that was the goal. We were team Will's wing, but that did not keep us from, uh, pinching each other against the cliff with like three feet between each other and the cliff <laughs> and then while smiling, you know, I, I, I think, I think it was O'Brien against Shapiro or, or somebody like that basically flying underneath, you know, both three feet from the cliff, but flying underneath giving no, you know, the other person zero options and just like looking over and smiling. <laughs> it's like, bro, this is really serious. This is actually really serious here. So here's my middle finger. Have fun. Yeah. Well, you didn't, there's no, it's really smooth air, but you're going, you're so close to the cliff to get right in that best line that, you know, you're playing with a little bit of a, a little bit of wind gradient against the cliff because it's, you're so close that you're kind of in that lower speed wind area on your, on your, on your canyon, you know, on your cliffside wing. So Mm. when somebody, you know, pulls under you and then maybe, slow you know pushes out in front of you to regain position and awake you <laughs> it's not it's not as funny as it sounded you know <laughs> it's kind of like a really tense situation so we did three days of that and um that's all really good we all had like is customary down there for all the gringos we all had basically projectile diarrhea <laughs> the entire week <laughs> And, and, and bed bugs and all sorts of unmentionable things happen. And, but, uh, you, you should ask the Jeffs about that. You should have Jeff O'Brien on. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. The, the, the stories are legendary, but, uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite places to fly. I, I wouldn't want to fly there every day of my flying life, but, to right. you know, to go yeah, down there once a year. Survive, yeah, it. no, you, right. I, I don't have the the uh, intestinal strength for it, but <laughs> but it's it's an amazing <laughs> literally, literally and figuratively. Yeah, it's an it's an amazing <laughs> race. So yeah, so the race ends. You do your you, you do your. Um, it's about a thirty five minute race or something like that. We, we average about I think we average about seventy k's an hour. Jesus. Um, over a yeah 35 40 k course something like that yeah it's it's really fast it's really low and it's and it's often terrifying but it's very satisfying when you finish it and you know at your lowest point at your highest point during the race you're maybe a 100 meters over the ridge and at your lowest point you're about 15 meters over the 
over the beach, but it's not a beach. It's a highway with a power line between you and the beach. Whoa. Yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty nuts. Holy so, so people Whoa. have landed on the highway or, or crashed into the bushes against the base of the hill, and it's always worked out fine, <laughs> but it's very, it's very tense, and it's, uh, it's been covered by, by Davis Straub. He, he might have been down there. That, I think he was down there that year. Um, you know, he, he, I gotta, I gotta talk to him too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he, he could tell you how, how tense it was. So yeah, you do the race and the race is only 40 minutes and it's, and it starts at 4 PM for conditions, but also because we're just, we were just, uh, chronically hung over. Like it was, and not, <laughs> you know, one year we had a beer sponsor <laughs> thanks to Raul and that was great because we were actually drinking beer, which is more forgiving, but Every other year, it was just nothing but tequila. And I mean, I, I've lost days of my life down there. Like, I, if I look back, <laughs> if I look back at hangovers, I mean, I know one in particular, and it was there. And it, and I've lost. I can say that I lost a day of my life. Like, it was. It, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I woke up. Oh, and, I hate that kind of that kind of pain. Is no fun. No, you just, don't. Oh, it, so it, it was not worth it. Uh, so yeah, anyway, you get ah, but it kind of is. <laughs> well, it's memorable. Uh, yeah, you, you finish memorable. the race, so it starts at four for those reasons, and then you finish the race, and it's you know four thirty or five, and it's it's on the equator, so you <laughs> have a little time left. Again. You have a, another forty five minutes or so, and then you go north to to these what we call, I guess, the north what the Gringos call the North Cliffs, and uh, you, you glide over town. You get a little out, so you glide over town, and that puts you out over. I don't know if you ever flown there, but you. you glide out no, over this town and you'll connect to this other tiny little little pillar of a ridge that's sticking out close to the water and you you know it's literally 100 yards long and 100 yards high and you get a little altitude and you now from then on heading north you have nothing but but sandstone cliffs going straight down into crashing waves you know fairly fairly decent wave, I don't know, three, four foot waves, and they just go committing. Yeah, it's kind of these undercut, you know, overhanging cliffs. It's just really kind of stark. So you start working your way out there, and initially you're pretty low. You're definitely far out of glide of, of survival. Like, you're not, you're done. So you, you test the lift, and it's good. Okay, it's good. And you go, and you keep going, going, going. After a few miles, you go around this point, maybe three or four miles, you go around this point, and then there's a beach. So you get around this point, which is sticking way out in the ocean, and you go around, and then there's a beach. So that's where we would typically go after the flight because you can get – it's kind of straight into the wind, and it's right over the water. So it's – you know, it goes right to the water. So it's really smooth there. You can do aerobatics, and it's really smooth. So we would go down there. I'd often go down there with Shapiro after the, after the race, and we'd just fly around and do some loops. And, you know, you're six or seven, eight miles from, from where you took off, and you, there's nothing. There's – there's no trails down to that beach. There's no access, <clears throat> and high tide hits the cliff. So, at the time, you'd all you know you'd always see a beach that was about a couple wingspans wide. So it was landable, it was no problem. But you weren't getting out. Like a pilot had landed there, I think, and they they told us about some story. A pilot landed there, and they had to get him with a boat. And it's it gets dark fast, so they're not getting you before dark. Like yeah, it's equator. Yeah, they'll miss you. They'll just miss you, and then later they'll they'll get you. So. There's little alluvial fans of sand to climb up on and uh, escape the tide if you need to. Uh, but it's it's committing. Like you're spending the night out in the middle of nowhere and, and maybe losing your glider. I mean, it's the tide's coming up. So we would go out there and play around. We'd always, you know, 
or at least I would kind of play with fire a little bit and kind of dive down low and because it's just such a beautiful ridge. I mean, it looks like it's like the best ridge you've ever seen. It's like Torrey Pines, but twice as high and totally vertical and smooth sand, like the best. You couldn't design it better. And, uh, mm. yeah, we go down there and have fun. And I remember one day, tell me if I'm uh, droning on too long here. <laughs> no, I've, not at all. I've got the biggest smile uh, on my face. It sounds awesome. I just want to uh, highlight Kanoa because that place is – you know, you ask what, what are some of the best flights and they've, they've often happened there. We, we went to this place when we were, when we were uh, doing this sailing around the world thing. I don't remember what year that was, maybe 2010 or 2011. We, we ended up in Sao Miguel in the Azores. So, you know, a thousand miles off, off, uh, from, from Portugal. And the, there's a, there's a solid flying community there. They have this big fly in there every August. And we, we hooked in with one of the guys, Joao is still just an awesome friend. And we would go to this beach we went there every day for 30 days and he kept saying like, when it lines up here, this is the place. You guys are going to dig it. And, you know, it was 29 days and never lined up. We'd go over there and, oh, fuck, it didn't work again. And, uh, but it's just this, there's, there was a picture and in, in outside, you might, you might've seen it, but it, it sounds exactly like that because when it's right, it's so right. And I mean, it was, you're flying over the ocean against this cliff where if the wind changes like 30 degrees or if it just dies suddenly you're going in the ocean <laughs> yeah. there, I mean, there's no there's there's no bailout there's no it's the atlantic ocean i mean it's not like you know you're not like kind of landing in some water and you're going to swim in i mean it's just sheer cliffs as far as you could see and and it just oh my god but when it, it finally lined up the 30th day we went there and it was one of the most magical flights i mean no cross country nothing really i mean because the conditions were perfect it wasn't really that rad or gnarly it was just like oh my god i can't believe i'm flying over the ocean yeah there's something about that i mean obviously there's something about uh, having having to pay for mistakes i mean consequences definitely yeah. consequence definitely makes it more exciting i, I mean at uh, obviously at your stage and at my stage that's a measured decision sure um, yeah but sure. i mean we're making calculations but that definitely makes uh shines a light on what you're doing and makes it makes it more memorable that's for sure i mean it it sticks in the memory banks longer than those flights that have a giant farm field out in front of the hill you know <laughs> yeah totally Hey Dustin, before before we uh, before we jump into your 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 history, you said something there that I wanted to ask about um, because when when I was just down in Brazil with Jeff, um, he had on one of these super flared helmets, you know, really aerodynamic. And a couple months before I went to the X Alps this year, I got a text from Larry Larry Tudor. We we talked about him, and he and I become friends, and I loved talking to him on the podcast a bunch of months ago. And he was like, "Hey, dude, think about drag." And, uh, and I was like, wait, what? And, and he was like, you, you cut down on drag. And, and I, I think this is something that you guys clearly think about a ton because you're closer to the sailplane realm of things. But because I know you paraglide and you understand that too, like, are we missing out on something there? I mean, should we be thinking a lot more about that than we do? Cause we don't wear yeah. helmets that are aerodynamic and we don't worry too much about our clothing. I mean, you know, we, we use pod harnesses and, you know, clearly like with the new Zeno, you know, I mean, clearly the manufacturers are thinking a lot about line drag and reducing lines. I mean, that that's not a new thing, but are we, we, are we missing something there? No, I don't. I, I honestly 
feel pretty confident in saying no because um, you know you you got to obviously have the equipment to keep up if you're if you're flying with a with a buddy. I mean, you don't want to be you don't want to have a big day for ten hours and not be able to keep up with someone or struggle so hard that it's just it's almost impossible. So you know, as long as you're matched, that's really the most important thing. And <clears throat> all those mm. years in Kanoa has taught me for sure that that those small changes are completely they are absolutely invisible in a in air that has any texture at all there's no there's just absolutely no way to see those changes and and i've and that's a kind of a contentious issue because a lot of people are convinced that that it is and and then they'll say well you know i was gliding next to so and so on this day and we you know he was 100 yards to my right and he just totally killed me and it's nothing but line because after all those changes we made and, and we don't just randomly make them. I mean, we, you know, Steve Pearson from Willswing came out here to, to Arizona to our flight park and we towed up in the winter, spent like a weekend doing nothing but comparisons and doing, you know, isolating every little thing that I, that I wanted to add to the glider or, or change on the glider, batten profiles, uh, adding reflex, taking away reflex, all these little stupid fairing things, uh, the helmet, you know, I had a carbon fairing on my main riser that connects the harness to the glider. Um, just, you know, and a ridiculously low reflex set or washout setting on the glider, like a super low twist setting, something you'd never fly in, in thermals. And after all those changes, we would do, it's actually a video that Dave Aldrich made of these, these comparison tests. We do three minute glides and the best of all of those modifications would work out to about a five foot height difference after three minutes. So there, there's oh, just nothing. There, you can't, just when you control the glider a little bit sloppy and you get a little bit adverse yaw, it would kind of equalize us for a second. I'm like, oh man, now we got to glide three more minutes to see if there's actually any difference. It, and I'm talking about in, in winter smooth air. So, mm. you know, we glide three minutes, get a five foot difference, turn around, do it again at different speeds. And it's things that you think. Think, it's irrelevant. Yeah, things that you think you you know from reading books on you know sailplane books on aerodynamics and speed of flying on, and all that. You think, oh, this is definitely making a difference, and it's really weird. Like one thing that you think would make a difference will make kind of a little difference, and then you're like, well, if if more reflex is good, then a little more reflex is better, and we'd add a little more reflex reflex on that fourth batten. And I'm talking about just bending it to where the the, the tip the back tip of the batten is one inch higher on that one, one single batten. And suddenly the gain that we had made from this, from the inboard three battens being raised up an inch was completely erased with that fourth batten. So clearly we were hmm. adding reflex too far outboard. And, and then the, you know, we did several comparison glides to make sure. And it's like, well, that didn't, that doesn't work like I expected it to work. So, you know, when you're, t- <laughs> you know, from gliding with people it, in one second, a guy can gain 20 feet on you and be a wingspan away from you just from the air. I mean, there's just no, there's no way that it's going to help you. And certainly not if you're doing your own flight, you know, or if you're mostly flying alone or just one guy, it's nice to know Mm -hmm. that you have the best glider. That's probably the most useful part of it is to have that psychological advantage knowing, you know, if if you have the tiniest edge, you're probably not going to get dropped, but to go to all those links to, you know, you you certainly wouldn't want to compromise safety by wearing a helmet that doesn't have, um, you know, I don't wear Lubin shells anymore unless I'm at the beach on that, at that race. I, I wouldn't compromise something like crushable foam in a helmet or, you know, some kind of protection on, 
some, at least some protection on a paraglider harness. I mean, it's just, no, I don't think you're getting anything. I don't think you're getting anything tangible from it. Uh, why don't we talk briefly about, and it doesn't have to be super brief, but let's talk about your, uh, for those of you, for those of the listeners who don't know, uh, of course they know you broke the record, which we'll get into, but, um, why don't we give us a brief kind of history of, of the, uh, Dustin flying show since the beginning and, uh, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. So yeah, my flying history, I guess the first thing I did was RC. I, I can't remember when that was exactly. I must've been eight years old or 10 years old or something like that. But, uh, that definitely helped to be able to picture how, how a glider flies or, or how anything, you know, how an airplane flies. Uh, when I was learning, it, it definitely sort of sets you apart. It gives you a, a leg up for sure. And that's, I mean, even till today, you know, being able to look at something sort of, uh, you know, third person from the ground and, and sort of watch what it does and then have that instant feedback of, you know, okay, well that's, it's lifting because of the, you know, falling out of the thermal or I'm doing this, I'm doing that. That's been a, you know, a real help and it's translated pretty much directly to hang gliding. I don't know so much about if, how that's worked out with paragliding, but, but overall it's been a big help. And then it's interesting if I, if I could just interrupt for a second, it, you know, just earlier today, I was, I was uh, doing another, I was doing another recording with a, an acro guy that's been around a long time named Zandy. He lives over in Gurlitzen. And that's how he started his flying, and it it just clicked with me. I I don't know if you know Farmer Matt Beechner. He's kind of our, you know, local air Jedi, and he's one of these guys that I just, you know, he he flies a quarter as much as I do now because he's just busy and he's got work and other stuff. But I don't think I'll ever be as good as him because he's just one of these people that just has this insane feel. And he has also spent a lot of time with RC. I, th- I think you guys are onto something there. It must be it must be a really good learning tool. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I, I I don't know about for other pilots who do it, but it, it, it you know since I started young, I started with that because it was all I had. It's all I could do. Mm-hmm. I wasn't old enough to fly a, you know fly on my own. But yeah, it definitely does something to to your hand eye coordination and to your perception of, of, I mean, I'm constantly relating in my mind what's happening to me and my glider relative to, you know, what that would look like on the ground. And that's, I mean, I don't know if that constantly helps me, but it for sure and centering thermals and, you know, finding beneficial lines and, and stuff like that. It's, it's definitely helped. And I mean, I was pretty obsessed with it. I mean, I wasn't, you know, out flying the things five days or six days a week or whatever, but I do remember with a a buddy that I taught to hang glide back in the nineties. Um, you know, we were both into RC, we were roommates for a while. And I mean, it was to the point where, you know, we were throwing these things off the hill and one day I was, had the thing pretty high and we were both in my car, this old 84 Pontiac Bonneville. And, uh, I was like, man, that thing's pretty high. I think we should probably just go ahead and try to fly at home. (laughs) And, uh, he got in the driver's seat of that freaking land yacht, and I sat in the on the windowsill of the passenger seat, and we we drove that thing uh, down Ray Road for I don't know seven or eight miles, losing constantly losing sight of the glider, and then intermittently having the thing so low that we had to stop in the middle of traffic to like get a low save. And we, oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> we eventually. You guys, you guys were like the original drone pilots. That is yeah, badass. I mean, yeah, we were. T- <laughs> so we we ended up. You know, we did that a couple times and 
yeah, it teaches you a lot about air and lines and I don't, not giving up. Like one, one of those times we, I, I just lost sight of it. I mean, you know, when something gets so far away, it kind of just disappears into the pixels of your, of your mm-hmm. eyes. I mean, it was just gone. And, you know, after a while, after a few minutes of looking for it, we're like, well, I guess we lost that one and, and started driving home and uh, saw the thing like spiraling out of control towards the ground over the freeway. We're like, Oh, I guess we got it now. So then we, you know, we flew home with it. So yeah, that, they, they have definitely factored in in a positive way um, to just my general feel. I don't know if that was, you know, the, the only thing that, or, or what, what gave me a real advantage, but yeah, it's, if I could do it again, I'd definitely start that way. It's, it was really helpful. Hmm. And give me, give me some time and some reference. How old are you now? And when, when was that? So 37 now. And <clears throat> you know, that, that was all happening around, that was actually all happening around the time. Those, the stories are when I just started hang gliding or maybe two or three years after I'd started hang gliding, I was fairly fully obsessed actually. And, uh, but I, I probably started that when I was eight or 10 or something like that. And then when I was, um, when I was 14, I had, I had just about then moved out here full time to Arizona and, um, and, and I started flying sailplanes <clears throat> and I had, I already knew about hang gliding in some way. I can't remember when I first saw or, or learned that it existed. I, it was definitely before that. It was probably when I was, you know, 10 or 12 years old. I, I do remember seeing like a lookout mountain advertisement or flyer or something, something relating to lookout mountain. I, I saw and knew about when I was, when I was young but uh, for some reason, the, the sailplanes seemed like the way to go at the time, I, 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 maybe because of the model. So when I was 14, I got a job out, out here at this place called Estrella Sailport. And, uh, yeah, I just ran wings. I, I, I ran the wings when they took off, and that was good for 50 cents a tow. And I think maybe two bucks an hour on top of that, 250 an hour. Um, that's something like that. So I, I you know, I, I took a tried to take a flight or two at the end of each day, you know, lesson with the instructors there. And so my, they would actually print me out a check, uh, each two weeks or each month with a negative value on it. I don't know if that was just a, an accounting thing or a, as a joke, but it was, they always printed me out my negative check at the end of the month. <laughs> <laughs> Cause you weren't getting, en- you weren't making enough to pay for your flying time. No, definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> and, uh, so that, that went on for, I guess I, I soloed it. 15 and and was pretty I was pretty pretty much into it but I can't remember I must have been about 15 and a guy came down there and I had already you know I was in high school and 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 I had already managed to find some books in the library about hang gliding not by accident I mean I was looking and I already knew about it I can't remember the details but a guy did come down there to the sailport flying a pretty clapped out old glider called a a a lack and it, I mean, that wasn't a very well-made glider to start with, and it was a pretty clapped-out version of it. And he wanted to sell me an equally scary hang glider because he heard that I was interested in hang gliding. So as a pilot who had zero experience, not even one second under a hang glider, he wanted to sell me a foil combat, which uh, I think, it, from what I've heard, is actually a pretty sweet flying glider, but it was nothing that you'd ever you wouldn't put an offer to a beginner. On it. Yeah. <laughs> So he, he, uh, talked about a few flights he had and, um, yeah, my interest peaked again because I just to step back a little bit when I was, I don't know, 13 or 14 or somewhere around there, my mom took me to another sailport on the other side of Phoenix 
And I took a flight in a sailplane. Might, might have been my first one. And we were thermaling up. It must have been summertime, just uh, over the Carefree Highway up there. And this guy in a hang glider rocked right up to us at the same altitude and just basically was like waving at us and cord right through us and was gone. And I was just like, what the hell just happened? That dude was like hanging in a golf bag underneath that thing. That was incredible. <laughs> I guess that was amazing. I'm so going to make that, those golf bags someday. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to make absolutely no money making those one day. They're going to look really cool. <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was from a place called the Oasis. So that, that was turf soaring school and they towed right across the street at a place called the Oasis. Um, and, and that's, when, you know, when was that? That would have been 1990 or something. Hang gliding in Phoenix or in Arizona was a kind of a big deal. They had, they didn't just go out there on the weekends with, with one truck and a winch. They, they had lanes lined up and were running multiple lanes of tow trucks with winches and dune buggies with winches to get these guys up in the air. Holy and shit. Really? Yeah. I mean, this, yeah, this was the era of Hans Heydrich and uh, Bob Thompson and, you know, the other Jeff Reynolds and Brad Lindsay, they were all Towing was the thing in Phoenix at the time, and there was a big community. I mean, it was, it was kind of a, you know, I got in in '96, and it was still an exciting thing. Like it was big enough that the meetings always broke down into huge shouting matches, like just with everybody. You know, it it seemed important at the time. There was a lot of people, and they were passionate about it, and there was all there was always a fight. It was, in hindsight, that was all very cool, but. At the time, we thought we got to get a, you know, we got to rein this in a little bit. This is not attracting <laughs> new members. <laughs> yeah, we, we need to attract new members. And now it's just like, like we need anything. We don't care. <laughs> a drag right. out fight every night would be preferable. So better than what you have. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's I mean, that, that's basically how I started to learn about hang gliding. I was through the a few little chance encounters. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm at Estrella Sailport. I solo at 15 got my license at 16 and and I, I probably would have gotten obsessed with that if the hang gliding hadn't completely completely you know derailed that and so uh, as soon as I took a look at hang gliding which back then wasn't getting on the internet it was you know uh looking at magazines and and digging through the yellow pages you know I found an instructor and, and that was it like I took I went up there one weekend and I already was like, well, the sailport is a waste of my time. And then, you know, I did three total weekends of, you know, six days of flying with uh, this instructor, Bill Holmes, who's still around instructing. And I was like, yep, yep, this is it. So, I mean, I was a hundred percent obsessed and uh, managed to get myself fired from the sailport <laughs> just for general jackassery or I, they, I, they didn't they didn't want to pay you negative money anymore or what yeah I, it, we're, we're i'm actually still really good friends with all those guys it was kind of a I mean, for, for me it was kind of a joke and and you know every, i still go there once in a while and run a sailplane out and it's all it's all good but yeah that's the, i guess they realized that uh my time was you know more important for me than giving it to them in, in a very selfish mm -hmm. way so i was like well i'm gonna go hang gliding so yeah i learned with I learned with Bill Holmes and, and, uh, yeah, that was that. I got, I got a, my first hang glider just shortly after that and, and just was completely obsessed for several years. This is 96. Yeah. 96, you know, okay. August 96, I took lessons and, you know, early 97, I, with a sort of a mentor of mine here in Phoenix, I found and purchased a, a Moise XT 165, which turned out to be a pretty, 
pretty average glider for someone with my experience. I, I probably took about one step too far to, you know, buying that thing, but it, it worked out fine. It was looking at it now. I mean, it's just like any other sort of novice glider. It, I should have bought a, a, a Falcon or something like that, a single surface, but you know, in the nineties in Phoenix, that just wasn't an option. I was gonna, I was gonna get the glider to beat all gliders if it was my, you know, it, even though it was my first glider. Can you so. can you give me a just because I'm so stupid when it comes to hang gliding? Can you can you give the me and the audience uh, just a, a brief lesson on? you know, single surface, uh, it, it, are there, are, do they have ratings like paragliders have, you know, that from, from real, from comp to real, you know, to learning, you know, give, give us the, you know, the two minute basic course on, uh, you know, for somebody that wants to learn how to hang glide, where, where do you start? Where do you end? What, what are the differences in single surface and those? Right. Everyone's probably aware of, you know, single surface and double surface. So you've got a, a really simple single surface, you know, top sail, which is essentially like a, windsurf sail and all the the tubes are exposed basically uh, mm -hmm. and that's the cheapest uh the you know the, the cheapest to to build generally the sort of the most stable because of the increased uh, cord length so it's you know more resistant to sort of tumbling events it's really really damped it's not unstable and, the, you know, they don't have, so that would be considered a beginner glider and they use beginner gliders also as training gliders. So it's, it's slightly different than, than paragliding. You can have like a school wing, right? Or, or you can have what someone would generally buy as a first wing. For us, it's pretty much the same. And that, okay. that's only changed a little bit with Will's wing, one of Will's wings latest gliders, the alpha. So that could be considered really a school wing because it's just, it's just really slow and a little bit bigger than than you know the larger falcons, so it allows somebody on their first day to go a little bit slower and and be a little bit less overwhelmed, you know, as they're running headfirst down a hill. Um, so yeah, what, what they don't. What would the glide ratio be on on that versus you know what you're flying in comps? Well, you know, Wilswing guys, they, they're I'm probably going to say it wrong, and they'll let me know. But it's I think a falcon is probably let's guess like. Oh, geez, who knows, like six to one or something like that. I mean, they're, okay. the alpha's probably pretty similar. I mean, at that so performance level. It's a paraglider, level, really. Yeah, it's, well, no, it's, depending on the paraglider, yeah, it's I mean, far a low-end paraglider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it, it's, it's a speed so, wing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That goes really slow. Right. So it's, it's really easy to fly. You know, it's, it's, it's ideal. It's what I should have got as a first glider. It's what, it's mm -hmm. what everybody should get as a first glider, and it's what I attempt to convince you know, all, all of my students or the students where I, where I tow, um, that they should get as a first or even a second or a third glider. I mean, it's, I, I wish I had one sitting here in my apartment too, but yeah. So the, one of your questions is, do they come with ratings and they don't, they don't come with ratings like you're accustomed to. So, so those, you know, new pilots may be looking for that and they may be confused, but I guess we that are already flying and are kind of in the market, we, we know that, you know, an alpha is a school glider, a Falcon is it, is it, you know, a really great first glider or a tandem glider. The the, the tandem models um, are generally a large version of like the the beginner glider, mm -hmm. uh, just for handling and takeoff speed and landing speed. And because you're not you know you're not trying to get performance with a with a tandem passenger. <clears throat> then the next thing would be like a novice glider, and that's um, uh, something like a, a sport two and. 
that's not an appropriate first glider for somebody straight out of straight out of lessons. I mean, it's it's easy to get in over your head, and you know it's really tempting to buy a glider that you think is going to carry you through whatever whatever you know position in your flying career you you think you want to get to before you have to buy a new glider. And it's you know I I did it a little bit too, and it's kind of the wrong it's the wrong way. I mean, if if I could go back, foundation. Yeah, that's the only thing I would really change if I could go back was was uh, just the first glider I got. Um, mm. Yeah, after that, you you start getting into inter- intermediate gliders, and then there's a there's a huge range of intermediate gliders, and they all by that point they they take about the same nearly the same skill level to fly as the absolute top of the line racing glider. So. You know, it's your choices are much more important in those first few years than they are later on. I mean, if you can successfully fly a, an intermediate glider, then you can most likely easily fly a topless glider. And what are what are the risks, Dustin? There, that when you as as you step up to these much higher gliders, is it is it kind of synonymous with what's happened with the, you know with the paraglider? They just get way harder to recover. You know, if mm-hmm. you if you have if if you have a blowout or you know cascades become, you know, just almost inevitable on a on a on a, a comp glider, and you know they're just more more spanny, so you, they're faster, so things happen faster. Is it kind of is it kind of the same? Is it the same speak? Is it the same trouble well, you have with it? I, I mean, I'd see you it guys don't fold up; <laughs> they don't collapse. Yeah, I mean, I think that you'd have a different problem. Like you could put a. I'm I'm guessing this. But I'm pretty confident. You you could put a anybody who could fly a, a, a A level paraglider on a comp glider if they could successfully successfully get the thing launched and they could fly it down in you know totally dead air and be fine. Mm-hmm. But it, when you throw somebody off in a high performance hang glider that's only flown single surface you know really baggy gliders, you're going to encounter the problem immediately off of launch. Uh, with handling and sort of this this damped um, you know delayed handling response on the high performance glider and it's going to get them really quick it gets almost everyone really quickly into an oscillation issue really close to the hill so that's it's more of a handling thing than yeah it's definitely more of a handling thing than a okay inherent glider safety thing i mean but then of course you when you start throwing in midday conditions then yeah, you're going to have similar problems to the paragliders. Okay. okay. Not to mention gotcha. also t- takeoff and landing speeds are going to be thr- thrilling and terrifying on your first flight on a topless glider. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Gotcha. Um, okay. So thank you for that. Appreciate that. And so take us from, you know, so you get your, you get your first glider in, in 96, uh, you you move up maybe a little too fast ninety seven. How do you go fill in the gap between there and and breaking world records? So yeah, I got that first glider in ninety seven. After I, I borrowed a lucky enough to, that there was a community here, so I was able to borrow a, a beginner glider in the meantime between lessons and actually getting my first glider. So I was on you know this borrowed glider and, and being thrown off every every sketchy no wind cliff launch around the valley here by my, my mentor and other pilots and got through that pretty much completely unscathed. And I guess I, you know, knew enough to, to stay on that sort of novice intermediate glider that I had for a while. And I, 
And I did. I didn't have much need to, to step up, but I, I really stepped up to the next glider, which was an extra light, just out of just the sheer sexiness of that thing. I saw this guy up at uh, Mingus had one, and I had to have it. I mean, I had to have his, not just one of them. I had to have that one. So I chased him around for you know a season, and I was like, I must have your glider. That thing is the sexiest thing I've ever laid eyes on. And I uh, kept telling me, no, no, no. And finally, he knew he had his sucker after he had put all the hours on it. And you know, I bought that thing from him, and I, I was ready for it when I, you know, I guess I was ready for it. And and I did it right. I went up to the craters, uh, which is basically Arizona's uh, sort of legendary training site. They're really smooth uh the, you know the terrain is smooth and at the time of year i flew it it was really cold there might have even been snow on the ground and it was really smooth flight so even after after all the hours in the xc's i'd done some limited xc on my glider and flown it in all kind of crazy air just stepping up to that extra light which now looking back is it's just it's just another intermediate glider in today's you know in today's range of gliders it was incredibly fast and scary and just you know, the sound of the air moving past the wing and me was was terrifying um, as soon as I flew away from the hill. And, you know, I just I managed to do a couple of 180s and not get really into too much trouble. It didn't oscillate too much. And I landed it on my feet. I couldn't believe it. And I and I bought the thing. I loved it. So, you know, I got I got used to that glider and started to have uh, some some success with cross country in, in this. You know, I started to have success in this small relatively small community we have out here you know relatively small compared to california or some of those places in brazil i mean so so i i had achieved some measure of success out here and that was enough with within you know i guess it was about 98 um i got a call from a guy named ken brown who's a good friend now and he was he was the uh, u.s distributor for Moyes, and he's like hey i've got a got an idea for you, you know, looks like you've been doing all right and I'd um, like to help you out. So uh, it, it turns out that he wanted to give me uh, a glider and, you know, maybe make that a regular thing. And so, so I ended up getting uh, used comp gliders from, from you know, so there was comp pilots that were fully sponsored that were, that were getting new stuff and I would, after a season or two, I'd get their stuff and I was like, felt like the luckiest guy on, on earth. <laughs> and, and I was, that was pretty amazing. So I was getting you know, pretty much top end equipment. That's right when the first good topless gliders were coming out. The the first good ones. And what, what would it what would what would a glider have costed? What what is what's a retail topless glider in two thousand cost? Yeah, that probably would have been done I probably seven or eight grand or something like that. Oh, so this is you were stoked. Yeah, there weren't all the carbon options or maybe even actually any carbon options at that point in time. You know, this, these weren't the first topless. This was kind of the second round of topless. They had figured out mm. some issues. And, and so, yeah, he, he helped me out, and, and I started getting kind of, reg, you know, semi-regular gliders from him that were used from, uh, you know, U.S. comp pilots like Kurt Warren and, and some other guys. And, yeah, I was super stoked. And he, so he kept me in gliders and sort of funded a first, a first little trip for me, and that, that was to go uh, from, from here in Arizona up through – sort of the western u.s through the rockies up to golden actually no sorry sun what is it sun peaks i think it's called sun peaks it's up in okay. uh near kamloops okay yeah so yeah I, I i drove up and i did uh stayed in salt lake city for a while i did the chelan comp 
that might have yeah these are that was my first comp i guess <laughs> I was, did chelan i might have done dinosaur in that same period uh went up to canada i actually couldn't get into canada i, I had to spend the night at the border in a hotel because i didn't have uh, i couldn't prove that i had enough money to get into canada <laughs> and, I, and that still makes me nervous going in there these days for the same reason so i i showed up and they're like well that's you know you're gonna need more than whatever i had 200 bucks for two weeks i was like well you don't no, you well, don't know money. me <laughs> right <laughs> so i i went there and i i accidentally drove to golden that was in the back in the day when you would just use a, a an atlas to navigate so i was going and i just the last thing i remember was that golden was a uh, a place in that they had competitions at and I for some reason that name stuck in my head and I drove all the way to Golden and that was a pretty amazing place I think I ended up flying a day there and and uh, yeah that was pretty awesome and then they're like no the comp's back at Kamloops I'm like oh Jesus okay so I turn around and freaking drive my Bonneville <laughs> back the uh, you know this is like this is the most clapped out you know old 84 Bonneville with like that fake pleather roof it's just ridiculous so i drive just ridiculous <laughs> you know you hit a speed bump and it just keeps it keeps going up and down for like half an hour so i, I get to Kamloops, and <clears throat> yeah i forget the guy's name but he had organized this comp and uh some of the canadian stars were there and uh <clears throat> some some people from actually out of the you know across the ocean had come and it seemed like a pretty big deal and that was yeah that was great flying so you know, I camped out for that week and had a had a great comp and definitely learned a lot. I got I got my ass kicked by a, a New Zealand pilot that came up to do that comp, mm. and I th- man, I think I might have gotten second place there just by by luck. I, I tend to do. I've had my best days, not my best comps, but my best days towards the beginning of a comp when I'm uh, when I have the least expectation and and definitely the lowest. Um, confidence in my ability I, mm. I tend to just slow the thing down and try to hang high and just let everyone else make decisions and that's how i flew that whole comp because i didn't know what i was doing and and uh yeah so i, I got lucky and did well and that, that guy jeff did did much better he was a pretty crafty pilot and taught me by example a f- few little tricks about you know <laughs> popping into a cloud and and hanging out while other people take the first start and then popping out of the cloud on the other side and grabbing the next start and you know, just little st- start games that I still haven't learned. That I, I now, twenty years later, I haven't learned what start to take and and how to take it, and you know, so it's ongoing. But uh, yeah, that was all as a result of of Kenny Brown sort of sponsoring me, and then I came back, and uh, you know, another topless was in development in Australia, and he's like, "Hey, man, how, how would you feel about uh, going to Australia?" Oh my God, dude, I'm, I'm there. So he, uh, he bought me a ticket and I, and it was sort of as a, you know, I, I worked there under the table, obviously at, at, at the factory and he, you know, got, got paid enough to, to sort of survive and did this, the, uh, winter, you know, the North American winter comps there. And Is that yeah, that was how to sell. So the guy here that helped in Phoenix that, that sort of helped me find that first glider and mentored me for a few years, he had a big industrial sewing machine and talked me into buying that thing from him. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, I don't need it, but okay, the price is right. And I just started sewing on it and making stuff. And then, yeah, when I went to to Australia, that was just two or three years later, I I talked them into sort of 
letting me use the machines here and there after hours to sew a toe bridle or do whatever. And I, I, I could fake that I knew what I was doing well enough to let them grudgingly say, okay, you know, you, you, he probably won't break the machine. And I, and I did, and I, you know, sewed a few little things and that's over the years that's transformed into, you know, making harnesses and stuff. I had the same thing with Will's wing. I was like, you like, yeah, I know how to use a machine. I'm not going to break it. And, and th- at that point, that was true when I when I joined Will's Wing. And thanks to them and, and a lot of time that's gone by, I've, I've gotten better and better at sewing. And I've got more experience with, with how to do things right. And we've, over the years, done done structural tests. And I get to just see the results of how certain, how certain stitch patterns hold. And, you know, just, I guess that's what it takes, just a, a, a lot of experience. And obviously, with with Shapiro and the covert project that, that added uh, a lot of experience. Hmm. And when, when did, so, so now we're, we're about 2000, you're, you're down in Oz, um, you're, you're working with Moyes, you know, when, when did it start? Was there kind of like an aha moment in there in terms of, you, you mentioned kind of like in Kamloops, you're, you mentioned a little bit of flying psychology and just in terms of like, you know, you, you, you've kind of identified like, Oh, this is when I do well, but um, you know, how were you able to kind of accelerate maybe into the comp scene and big distances? Was there, was it just kind of passion it's for it and just, just kept going, pushing yeah, it or did something say that. click? I okay. was just going to say that it's, it's nothing but just pure obsession is just, just being passionate. I mean, there's no, you can tell when somebody asks you like, how can I get to this level, whether or not they're going to get there regardless of what they do or whether they're going to get close to there because they really, they really want it, but they're not passionate about it. And you just, you know, anybody can be pretty good at it, but to get, to get really good at it. And I, and I honestly haven't ever made that. uh, I haven't stepped up to whatever that level is of the, you know, like Manfred and Christian and, and, you know, I got to watch Alex Ploner make that step between between about the time he was in Zapata. I don't remember what year that was, and when he obviously got really good and, and won a couple of worlds. There was there's some last plateau. I'm sure it's not the last, but there, mm. the last demonstrated plateau we can see in the hang gliding world is to reach where they are. And I don't know what how you get there. I mean, I, I suppose that you just stay obsessed. And you know, honestly, I lost that. Um, that particular level of obsession, um, maybe for the better, I don't know. But I, I, (laughs) at the time I was, it was, you know, I could, I could fly my local hill here three times a day. And that included two hours of driving round trip, you know, to pick up the glider at the LZ and hike up and get the car. And that seemed totally normal to me. And, uh, it just, that, that those days are gone. Um, but I'm super, super thankful for them. And yeah, so going, like going back to Australia, I was fully obsessed. So I did the you know, the, the summer comps there and had guys sort of my, you know, Johnny was my age and he was getting, he was already good. And he's, he's always been a little better than me. And he's just kept that, that spacing between us as the years have gone by. So I learned a lot from him. And there was a, uh, a young guy named Joel Rebecca who, uh, who unfortunately died after, uh, he went to airborne gliders, um, and was helping to develop a glider there. And he just had a, you know, launched a really sketchy day with a really strong and very cross wind at the coast, um, attempting to do basically a foot launch world record from the beach as, as I heard it attempting mm-hmm. to launch off on a, on a, I don't know what kind of a frontal day it was, but 
clearly a nuking day at the beach and it's i forget the name of the cliff but it's up uh you forget the name of the town but it's north of sydney up there mm. where where airborne is based i think yeah he was going to fly inland and get over the mountains and then you know he was joel was incredible he was an amazing pilot and would have very easily reached the absolute top i mean he was at the time he was already as pretty much as good as they got like he was he definitely had the magic already and uh so i learned you know i learned a lot from him and he was super cool young guy super funny and you know we hung out a lot during those few months that i was there and uh you know obviously garolf the the designer from from austria had when you could squeeze it out of him had some uh, has some really just amazing technical knowledge and you know I, I learned a lot I was like a sponge basically I was trying to soak everything up and uh, you know so I was flying his glider and I wanted to know everything about it and he sort of kind of tolerated that a little bit and you know so I flew with him and Joel and Johnny and all those guys and we did you know Mount Beauty and Koryong and uh, uh, obviously we went to Hay and Daniloquin and all those inland desert sites. And yeah, that was a big experience. And then I came home from that and I don't know why. I don't know if it was because of some accidents that I had seen or heard of, you know, and I, you know, I'm young, I was a young guy. So I, at that point in my life, I hadn't been doing, I hadn't been doing anything where I was seeing people around me die. That was, that was a new thing. I guess I could, because of that, I could probably identify with like the general public as they see us. Right. So at that time, I, I was like, man, I maybe that was it. I, I can't say for sure, but I might have just been getting burned out just from the competitive, as, you know, competitive aspect of it, and I hadn't really competed in anything before either. So at the same time, I was super stoked about it, but I had this confusing feeling of like, ah, I might need to step back from this, and so I did. And in, uh, in two, you know, two thousand and one or whatever it was when I got back. So yeah, I got back and I, I immediately just stepped back and I was like, eh. I mean, I really, I was totally obsessed with flying still. That never changed at all. So I, I but I stepped back from the comps and sort of had to look inward a little bit. And, um, you know, that was a couple of years, a few years. And I, I get the occasional call and heckle from, from the crew and, you know, Johnny and those guys like, what's, you know, what's the matter? Are you scared of us? And so, yeah, that was about 2003, probably I met Kevin Carter. He's this you know, he's good at, he's good at everything he does. And that's, so when he started hang gliding, uh, he got really good, really fast. He got, uh, you know, he got some, some minor sponsorship, some help from Eros at the time and started doing some comps. And I mean, literally within three years of him starting hang gliding, he was on the team hmm. and, and he became a really good friend. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, one day he called me up when I was doing some odd job, whatever I was doing here in Phoenix. And he's like, Hey bro, you, you need to, uh, you need to come over here to Will's wing. And, you know, I talked to these guys and they're, they're keen to like maybe, uh, make a deal with you. And, you know, you just need to, you need to be on board. And I was, and we may have talked about it before. And I was like, ah, no, I got this, you know, I was a kid and I had some sort of a small sponsorship going. I'm like, Oh, I don't want to wreck it. And, Hmm. but he, he knew better. I mean, he, he, he knew better. So he's like, look, you need to, this is what you need to do. And this is why And he laid it out. And I was like, all right, that makes, that makes sense. So, so, uh, I, I ended up talking to those guys. I think it was uh, Rob Kells that I talked to and, uh, he's like, you know, he's Rob Kells is like the nicest guy ever. He was sort of the face of Will's wing at the time. He was the, uh, he was the voice between Will's wing and all the dealers. And, 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 uh, you know, he was sort of taking care of the team at the time. And that was, uh, Kevin and, and me. And then that grew into, uh, 
Shapiro and, and Jeff O'Brien and Zach. And so, yeah, that, that's, I got in right at the right time. And, uh, mm. and yeah, thanks to Kevin. So yeah, that was a, over the next three or four or five years, we built a really amazing team and, and, you know, you don't know it till you look back. You, you always, at the time I was like, man, that must've been, that must've been great to be, you know, a member of the, the Will's wing team back in the eighties or nineties. You know, it sounded so, all the stories sounded so cool and it was there, you know, those guys were just like epic partiers and, and I mean, epic partiers. It sounds like there, there's a few stories there, but, uh, in, in hindsight now, I mean, I wouldn't have wished to be there at any other time. Like we have, we have the, the best team that I think there ever was. It was just super cool time to be involved. And, uh, we traveled, we traveled everywhere together. I mean, we, we traveled the world together. It's pretty cool. And uh, everybody just so happened at that time to not have really any, any pressing responsibilities and and you know it was just kind of a continuous good time it was great and we learned a lot and everybody was really well matched in skills we we got really good together and and uh you know we're all still really close friends and yeah, yeah that was, that was having a community and mentors and is, is everything isn't it it really is i just that's... yeah and having someone else's you know seeing someone else's passion makes you will rekindle your own passion. I mean, it's really easy in a, in a community like the one I'm in now to just kind of hang the glider up and be like, well, there's no one to fly with, or there's, right. there's only paraglider pilots. And every time I put my glider on their roof, they're kind enough to let me put it on there, but I like crush the thing on there. Cause there's no rack. It's just easier to say like, you know, maybe I'll hang yeah. it up. But at the time it's like, you know, God, man, Shapiro's stoked. And O'Brien is freaking stoked. And Zach's like, what are you doing with your life if you're not hang gliding? And I was like, well, <laughs> that's that's right so let's spend all of our you know let's spend all of our money and time doing this and man it was funny i was doing my you know I, I, actually doing taxes and i did my taxes and that you know for a few years there i was spending over ten thousand a year on tickets and i was like well, this is this is a thing i this is a thing that i do i guess i'm a i guess i'm a hangler pilot traveling hangler pilot <laughs> <laughs> That was that was a real deal. That was the bang your head, like oh my god. I'm yeah, there's some money this. here. I, I could I could uh, I could be doing some interesting things with this money, but I'm doing this. So yeah, no, it was it was awesome. And there was uh, yeah, the, the traveling was probably the most valuable aspect of the, of the whole deal for sure. Yeah, it always is. Yeah, the, yeah there's yeah. just so many embedded lessons in travel. <laughs> Eventually, you know, I did get back into comps because I. I I think I ended up doing a Worlds in 2000. Yeah, I guess I did a Worlds in France in 2004. So it didn't. I was only out of the comp scene for a couple of years, but that was probably, you know, a sign of things to come because I, I've since you know 2003 or four I've been doing comps pretty regularly and I've hit most of the Worlds that I was interested in doing. And then, you know, the Worlds uh, came around to Valle a couple of years ago and I I bailed on that. I made the team and I was like, yeah, I'm not definitely wasn't in a Valle. And then this one in Brasilia, I really wanted to go to. And it, it was basically financially, I, I just couldn't make it work. I'd got myself into a little bit of a hole here that would have been not wise to go to Brazil for three weeks or a month and spend all my money at the time. So, it, it, and you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't regret it at all after hearing about the conditions there and, and just the gaggles. And it's, there's just, a, I've had a general turnoff to, um, the bigger comps, cat one and cat two comps. And just the, you know, I was in a worlds in Italy and, and the organization there, I just didn't like the, the way 
I didn't just like, I just didn't like the general feeling of the comp. It didn't feel peaceful and it, it wasn't, it just wasn't benefiting me, you know, at the time. So I, that's, that's sort of uh, brought me to the day where I'm, I'm totally happy flying. I actually fly quite a bit less now just because of other, other things going on, but, um, uh, I'm super happy to fly. I'm, I'm, I see a good day and I want to go, but I, I don't have the, that urge to, uh, it's not the, the obsession. Oh, I don't have that obsession to start with. And I definitely am, am not uh, interested in cat one or cat two comps at the moment. Yeah. That could change mm. as it, as it has in the past. <laughs> and so, uh, how does that jive with 2012, you know, ch- chasing the chasing? I mean that I, as you, you and I talked about before we started recording, I, I just got back from Brazil. I went down to fly to SEMA where, you know, Rafael and Donizetti, those guys broke the world record last year. And I mean, it, it, it's brutal. I have so much respect for those guys. Cause I mean, you're waiting around in a terrible place for weeks with the, to the chance of getting one flight and that one flight, you know, it's a crapshoot if you bomb out in the first 50k and like like that happened last year you know one of the best pilots in the world was on the ground 15k out and the other guys went you know they they got it and it's, right. yeah, it's just it's just brutal I and mean, just it's the waiting game is you know i think people imagine that you know you go and it's fun and you're hanging out with your buds and the train's really cool but i, I think brazil's from what i understand it's like texas it's the real deal i mean it's <laughs> there's there's fences and there's shit that can kill you and especially in texas there's lots of people with guns i mean it's it's um i wouldn't call it like a pleasurable experience <laughs> like, <laughs> well yeah i mean that's it's yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting contrast between that and comps i don't have any problem with personal suffering i, I mean i can i i'm from phoenix <laughs> I, I can dig in in the heat i really don't <laughs> care very much and in fact when i showed up in 2012 it was it was like a hundred and I don't know, 105 or something, 107. And it was a definite cool relief when I stepped out of my car compared to Phoenix. Right. Yeah. I was like, true. well, this is great. I could hang out here all day long. And, uh, <laughs> so yeah, this, the suffering doesn't really worry me and the hours in the harness. I really don't care. Um, I don't like being scared at all. And <clears throat> that day it just, as it worked out, I didn't even know there was only brief spikes of fear, like on the takeoff. Cause it was crossed over the trees. There's, 10 seconds of terror and then that was fine. And then, you know, a couple of not, I guess not scared. I was too low and I'm like, Oh man, I might, I might just throw this day away. And, but otherwise it was completely safe day. I mean, it was very relaxing. It was the opposite of, of, uh, turning circles with 50 of your friends, uh, in, in every thermal all the way to goal. You know, that's in, in hang gliders. I mean, flying gaggles is one thing when you're, you know, on a paraglider, when you've got a bunch of guys around and you're, you know, you just have to worry about hitting somebody, but in a hang glider, you have to worry about hitting somebody, not because of just how many there are, but because you can't control the freaking thing because you're in everybody's wake and you, it's not like you can just pull a brake handle and overpower uh, somebody's wake. I mean, you can, you'll be in, you know, if there's a heavy guy in front of you and he's pushed way out and you hit his wake, you could just go from a 30 degree bank into the thermal to a 45 degree bank out of the thermal in one big smooth roll and you'll have nothing to say about it. I mean, it's kind of, and that can be really interesting if that rolls you into the thermal, like right into the cauldron of, of all those pilots. So it's a, it's a workout. I mean, yeah, you can over to an extent you can overpower that, but it takes an incredible level of focus and strength, uh, you know, with a high performance glider to fly in, in gaggles, especially in weak air when everybody's shallow banked, 
uh, and extremely annoying to, to be flying with. I'm sure that's <laughs> probably the case in paraglider too. I'm sc- just sc- I find myself screaming at like like banging on the base tube and screaming for someone to just bank their glider, and uh, it's probably just a personal problem because I'll end up cutting inside of them and doing my thing, come back around, and they're at the same altitude or higher than me. So it's, it's I don't know, maybe it's just a personal flying style. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you and Johnny are, you're, you're down there and, uh, you're flying together and it sounds like wicked good day, you know, a little, little sketchy on launch, but otherwise, I mean, you guys went 761. That's a freaking, it's a fucking good day. Uh, yeah. and, and, uh, at the end it says in the article anyway, you guys are like wingtip to wingtip. So I got to ask you, was it like, did you guys just talk about this in advance? Like, Hey man, if we have the chance to come in together, we're coming in together. Or like, I mean, you eked no. him out. Is he still pissed at you about that? Or, or would he have done the same thing to you? I believe he would have done the same thing. And it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't, it, the details are a little bit different, but yeah, it's, it's there. It wasn't okay. really eked out. I mean, we, we did end up wingtip to wingtip at the 438 mile mark, which is exactly where we, we intersected the, the previous longest flight from Mike Barber. Okay. So I was there and I was watching my GPS and it was like 438. And I'm like, you know, kind of like having my little celebration there for a second. Cause I was high. It was like 10 grand and you know, the clouds were dying. I'm like, I got it. Cause I had, I had sort of left him at the beginning of a cloud street. I had just flown off the end of and, just by my lucky positioning, when I flew under one really good cloud, I, I got the climb before, you know, he was a few hundred yards to the side. I got a really good, like four meter. And, and by the time he slid over after I'd done a turn or two, it was kind of, I pulled the ladder up on him. So that separation turned into uh, thousands of feet and miles and the clouds were dissipating as I was sort of topping each one out. And then they were all gone. And I'm like, well, I got him. He's, he's, you know, I'd seen him last miles, miles behind and thousands below. I'm like, it's just too late. And, uh, you know, I don't know what time it was, seven something. And uh, he, right at 438 miles th- through the humidity and the haze, there's this glider coming at me I'm at the same altitude. I'm just like, this can't possibly <laughs> be that guy. And I saw him coming, and he claims he had the same thought as I did. I, for Because we had just passed Big Spring, you know, an hour before. And I'm like, maybe this is just a hang glider from Big Spring, as if, I don't even think there's, I don't even think there's locals that live in Big Spring, but I'm like, maybe it just can't, it just, I can't do the math. I don't see how he climbed so quickly and, and recovered from where he was since I had not been held up in the last 30, 45 minutes. And sure enough, it was him. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> so there we were. And it was, it was like, basically I had at 438, I had started circling in like a 50 up cause I had just felt like, well, this is the time. And it turns out that I was right. That was there was to be nothing stronger than that for the rest of the flight. And so nothing to, to separate us for the rest of the flight either. And, and, you know, he's a pretty imposing pilot to, to be head to head with when it's, when the stakes are that high. And I had pretty much over the next few minutes, I was pretty much resigned to him. Like, well, he's probably going to get me because, uh, you know, he's, he's a better climber. He's really good at flying lines. He's going to do something, but, uh, you know, luckily at the end of the day, there's not all the air is pretty good. Yeah. Um, it's not you don't have to be a genius to get a good line, and um, and I was pretty fresh at at the time. I was you know been in the air ten hours, but I was feeling fine and couldn't couldn't complain. I mean, I didn't have an ache in my body, and I was hydrated and just you know I'd been peeing all day and and eating, 
Um, so I just, I felt great. All I wanted, I just wanted a beer. That's all I lacked at that time. But I was, I was totally <laughs> happy in my harness and, and he was definitely showing some signs of fatigue and constantly sort of rocking up and stretching his neck and, mm. you know, st- you know, shaking his arms out and stuff. And that's understandable, but, uh, I, I guess that's, and, and filming, uh, he'll, he'll remind you if you talk to him, he's, he lost that flight because of, of filming me. And oh, I, <clears throat> I laugh about that, but I'm very thankful that he, got filmed that day because I wasn't going to take any, I wasn't going to waste my energy on that. And so he's got some really amazing, you know, he made like a 20 minute film from that day and it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. It's pretty good to look back on that. And I'm sure in a few years it'll be even more interesting. So those of you listening, we'll put that up in the, in the show notes as well. And when this, when this goes live, well, that'll all be up there. Did Dustin, did it, did it change anything for you? What's that? Um, getting the record. I mean, it hasn't been beaten. Well, just in terms of your career, uh, passion, sponsorship, um, did it, you know, did it, uh, you, you and I were talking beforehand that, you know, Johnny these days is kind of one of the only ones that's, who's really, you know, making a, a, a living from the flying side of it. You know, you're making a living from sewing and to be, being involved with the companies and that kind of thing. But, you know, he's, he's really kind of gotten it figured out, um, which is tough to do. And hang lighting now, as I understand, because it's just, you know, it's, it's not the rage that it once was. Um, I mean, it's hard enough to do in paragliding. Um, but did it, did it, did it allow you to do stuff that you hadn't done before? It certainly doesn't hurt to have that record. I mean, if, if I was inclined to use that to my benefit to, to get, some, you know, increased sponsorship or, or I came there to fly 500 miles. I didn't even care about the record really. I just wanted the big 500 and that's what I went there for. And I was a little, you know, I even had a declared goal right up the street from where we landed at, at 500. And I was like, I was a little bit disappointed about that and getting the record was cool, but I already didn't, you know, it's, it feels good to have, have something like that and get the recognition up to a, a point. But yeah, I wasn't. I already wasn't interested in using it to for promotion or anything like that. It's just it's it's nice to have, and yeah. it's nice to finally beat him at something he's so good at. And yeah, and I know yeah, he's I mean, still I, he's still chasing it. I've been watching the news. He goes back there. He's trying. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to admit, I was I was uh, a little nervous when he stayed there, you know, for all those days. But that just reinforced what we all already know. I mean, what you guys know too is that. that it's the day. There are good places, but there it's the day. And that day, I used to think that day probably happened several times a season, and we just had to be there all of the summer season to get it. But I'm convinced more and more that the day that you get the real, the actual longest flight ever is is probably not even once a season. It's probably, yeah, it probably doesn't. It sometimes it's doesn't happen during years. a summer season. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, 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 I think you're dead on there. Well, Hey, Dustin, it'd be remiss of me to, to, uh, to, to the listeners, especially to not ask you, I, I want to get into some technical stuff. Uh, and it, I got really excited about talking to you when I was, I was just down in Brazil and I was hanging out with your buddy, Jeff Shapiro. And he, one of the days that was, you know, good, but not great. He got away with a guy named Tyler Bradford, who's been chasing it really hard. You know, he's a Tahoe pilot on Lake Tahoe. And, uh, and the rest of us all dirted early, which happens a lot there in Kishida. And, uh, and when Tyler came back, he said, cause I, I actually never got a chance to fly with Jeff and, and, you know, as you know, his background's in hang gliding and now he's just crazy about paragliding. He's chasing it really hard for the last kind of year and a half. And, um, 
Tyler was amazed with how well he was flying in really light lift. He said it just every single thermal he was out climbing everybody. Um, and there were some good pilots down in, in Kishida and Jeff's pretty new to paragliding. So obviously he was using skills that he'd learned in hang gliding that I think a lot of us don't know how to get. So what, what was he doing? What, what are, what, do, what can we learn from you guys? What can we be using that maybe we aren't? Well, that's, I mean, I don't talk to him often enough. That's news to me, but that's cool that he's doing so well. And I, I don't know what he could have. I mean, obviously he gets all of that thermal mapping in his head is from hang gliding. I don't know where he gets the extra edge. Maybe it's because flying in Missoula is, is not, it's not very, it's not always easy to get up there and the air is kind of weird. And, and there's always these inversions and shears and it's, you, th- you would look at the sky and think, well, I'm going to jump off this hill and get to 15 grand, but it just has never happened like that for me there. So maybe mm-hmm. flying you know, that mountain above the university there is, has helped him a lot. And I mean, obviously he's fully committed to it and traveling constantly to do it. And, you know, that's, that is the definition of being passionate. So that's, he's just taken his hang gliding experience. And I mean, he was, he was on the team repeatedly and doing, you know, doing good in the worlds. And, and I mean, he was right up there with the best for, for years. So I'm sure it just transfers right over once he figures out how to keep the wing open and, and, and you know how to launch a thing in sketchy conditions. Mm-hmm. What about lines? Um, he he had some really good thoughts. Uh, some of the guys one, one morning we were down there talking, and and some of the guys were really having trouble with the sink. Um, part of that I think was that you know we don't a lot of us weren't we're not flatland pilots, and you know and when there's a lot of wind, you know <clears throat> Jeff was explaining that that you know that sink. And in cloud streets in between them, or, you know, if you're, if you're, you're out in the blue hole or something that, that sink is, is tremendously strong. Uh, yeah. one, it was getting all of us, but, um, I had, I had learned by that point and because I, I wasn't, you know, we've all heard like, okay, you get in sync, you, you turn 45 degrees and you use a lot of bar. And, and that's kind of what I've thought of for 10 years. And I was, I was learning in Brazil that that's not nearly enough. Like well, you get, in that, you get in in that case, I'm screwed. Cause I, that's probably what I would tell you is I, is, well, uh, it was, yeah. it was, I was really amazed by it because, because there's so much wind, it just, it seems wrong going completely cross to the wind. You know, your, your glide right. goes to shit, your speed goes to shit. You're not flying course line. But I found the only thing that was working for me to get out of this stuff was to be extremely aggressive. And yeah. and Jeff had some thoughts about that. He was explaining like if you just keep going like what you're doing and just do it a little bit, you know, that you will never get to the thermal. You know, you're going to blow so much height um, yep. to, to go down. So it made me think more about lines. And I just wanted to see what your thoughts were on it because I, I, I think this is, you know, to me like – I was fascinated to hear when Kriegel was on the show that he doesn't feel like he's a very good climber. And I mean, but to me, climbing is, yes, there are brilliant climbers, but climbing to me is kind of one of these things that everybody can be pretty good at and do okay. To me, it's the gliding. And I would just think yeah. because of your aircraft, what you guys are flying, I think you're picking up on some things with gliding that we don't know about. I feel a little bit out of my depth just because, I mean, I'm pretty hard critic of myself. And I know when I, I know the very next time, if I tell you how to do it, the very next time I go out and fly, I'm just going to take it right 45 and go straight to the ground. But the, <laughs> generally, that's what I do is take a, 
you know, it's it, at our level of performance from paragliders all the way up to rigid wings. I mean, our performance sucks. It doesn't matter how, how good they are. They're all, they all relatively suck compared to sailplanes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just pounding your head through sink at that perfect, uh, McCready speed that, that your Vario is telling you to fly is, um, is not going to work nearly as well as just getting out of that sink. So yeah, it takes some pretty aggressive committed moves sometimes. I mean, when it's a cloud day, it's pretty easy to do the right thing usually. Mm. And it's, you know, you wouldn't think twice about going 60 or 70 degrees over to a cloud. Um, if the whole sky was visible to you and up ahead was, you know, a blue hole for 10 miles. I mean, obviously you go to that cloud and then you go, you know, maybe 45 degrees to the right after that. So you could see what is, what happens on the blue days that you just can't see. So, Unfortunately, on the blue days, you have to sort of stumble into it, and I'm certainly not the best at flying lines, but um, I, I won't just fly downwind and sink. I'll I'll almost instantly turn. I mean, I, I won't even spend five seconds in it. I'll just I'll just turn and, and get out of there. And I've and that's worked, and that's also not worked. And I've you know, there's some great pilots like Craig Coomer comes to mind. He comes out here to Arizona and and just kicks all of our asses at my competition every year for the past ten years, and. I remember him telling me, like, man, you are just all over the place. Like, we, we fly straight from thermal to thermal, and you fly twice the distance to get there <laughs> and mm-hmm. are, like, and lower when you get there. And I was like, yeah, I, don't, I just can't. It wasn't about not being able to decide. It was constantly trying to shift lines. And so there is a, there is a limit. Uh, you can definitely fly too far off course for too long and waste time and, mm-hmm. and also just constantly f- you know, just have a bad day and constantly turn away from what you think is sink and keep turning into more sink. Or so, you know, there's the pilots that there's a lot of pilots that just fly course line and they just fly course line. That's all they do, and and they often do really well, especially in if they have numbers on their side. If there's if there's a big enough gaggle, they just fly course line. More often than not, uh, I'm penalized by all my hunting around, uh, but I still don't. I won't stop doing it, and it's because once in a while I'll. I'll I'll get a really good line by hunting around like that. And I, I think for me personally, I, I need to scale that back a bit. Um, and it sounds like, you know, maybe you hold course line a little more and, and Shapiro's advice could come in handy. I mean, there's, I mean, if you're flying straight ahead and you hit thousand down and it's blowing 20 miles an hour, I mean, yeah, there's not, there's not much choice there. You, you got to get out of it or you could spend five miles in it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that that's what he made me more aware of, and he, he kind of was using diagrams, and I was like, ah, okay, right, you're yeah. not going to get to that. <laughs> there's just there, there's a level of magic that that you're talking about with some of those pilots that I, I honestly I wish I could I wish I could explain it, and I and I don't know what they do, and I've <clears throat> I've flown with some with a really good paraglider pilot here at my local site, and we've gone on a glide XC together, and he's kicked my ass on glide when I was in my hang glider, um, mm-hmm. you know, several consecutive glides, just by feeling it out and you know when i was flying i, I flew a i borrowed a what a delta two down in columbia last year or a year and a half ago and and felt like i could just feel lines like never before it was just incredible the tactile feedback through the lines mm-hmm. yeah and, you, and you're not going to get overpowered you're if that if you want it to turn it will turn like <laughs> right up till it spins it will turn so it was just really cool to be able to feel those lines in a, in a much more micro way. And that was pretty satisfying. I wish I had the, you know, I wish I had the handling to exploit it like that in a hang glider, but clearly there are pilots, uh, like Oleg when, when Oleg was competing and 
Brett Hazlitt was really good at flying lines. Garoff and obviously Christian and, and Manfred and Alex, they're all, they're all right there. They can, you know, they're, they're obviously the best at thermaling and the best at gliding. But when you get to a thermal 50 feet higher, you, you don't really have to be the best at climbing. You're out of everybody's wake. And, you know, you'd much rather be 50 feet higher in a thermal than 50 feet lower because when it does, when the ladder does get pulled up, the guys on top are going to, uh, will always get a little bit more than the guys just below them. So, yeah, getting getting there a little bit higher is definitely really important. That, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because the, the next thing I wanted to talk about was speed. You know, so you, it, it's great that you have, you know, so you have so much background in both aircraft, but, you know, you guys can fly McCready. We can't. And, and, uh, Jeff and I had a pretty interesting conversation about speed. Like I, I'm still very confused about how much speed to use, how much bar to use when I'm going downwind. Um, thoughts well, I, on that? <laughs> yeah, I do have some thoughts on that. It's, uh, and I've, it's, it's almost, uh, like talking religion. So I'll just, I'll just say my, my thoughts on it. I, I remember, um, when I was at Moyes, this, this, uh, pilot, it's Hilla Burtok. He probably still works there in some capacity was, was flying for them and, and helping with some, maybe some minor parts of design and especially with a larger glider. Cause he's a big guy. And, uh, he, he actually won the worlds in big spring, Texas. He won the pre worlds and the worlds there consecutively. Um, so he's a pretty good pilot. And, and I remember I was just a young punk and he was like, I think I just overheard him talking to someone else about speed to fly and wind. And, um, you know, explained it to me and, and it's like, Oh, that makes sense. That, that, that doesn't change at all in wind. It's exactly the same, whether there's no wind, headwind or tailwind as far as interthermal speeds go during the course of a cross country flight. Now, if you're, if you're on final glide and you're trying to get to a point on the ground, then obviously, you know, with a tailwind, you're going to slow down. But, you know, you're over, if you're trying to maximize your cross-country average speed through, a, through the parcel of air through the day, then you, you can only, you're, you know, your craft is only capable of a certain, you know, kilometer per hour through that parcel of air, given the, the lift and sink. Um, and so since since that parcel of air isn't aware that the earth is below it and your glider isn't aware of that either it, it doesn't change at all it's you're flying precisely that same speed all day um obviously it's not just a parcel of air we have trigger you know trigger points and mountains and you know mountain tops we have to cross and and bodies of water and you know, maybe a, a cloud is, is a little bit more anchored to the ground than, than the parcel of air that's moving around it. And, uh, you know, there's some little things like that, but that did stick with me. And, and I definitely don't alter my speed when there's a lot of tailwind or headwind unless I'm on final glide. So what you're saying is fly best glide or you're, or are you saying fly as fast as you possibly can? Well, fly, be, fly best speed to fly based on next expected thermal strength. Okay. All right. Um, gotcha. I mean, and, and as far as I understand, and, and I haven't heard anything to convince me otherwise, uh, that's, that doesn't change in a headwind or a tailwind. If, if your, if your destination is a thermal, if your destination is a point on the ground, it changes, but yeah. Okay. I gotcha. Okay. Interesting. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. That makes perfect sense. He, he, Jeff was kind of talking about that in terms of like, if you're, and this is a little bit different for, for hang gliders because you have different starts, you know, in a, in a comp. But if you're flying downwind, you know, he's talking about like if it's if it's the time of the day where the thermals are, you know, things are working pretty well, 
um, you know, if you, if you fart around, like if you, if you, if you, you know, you guys call it pulling rope, right? If you're, you know, if you're tucking, going as fast as you possibly can, you get to that next thermal, like you said, um, seconds faster than, than the guy behind you, you know, over the course of the day, that could be hours, you know, that could be a good yeah. couple hours of that. Cause you're, you're going to top out, you're going to go on glide faster and then you're into the next one faster and, and it just keeps adding up, you know? So if you're in survival mode, obviously everything changes, you know, this is, this is when things are working and, you know, you can see the cloud and you can get to the, you, you know, pretty high confidence. You can get there, you know, fly fast. Yeah. I mean, when I'm flying with a group of really good pilots, I've tried to hang back at a speed that I thought was more reasonable than what they were flying. And I, especially in a place as consistent as Big Spring, I remember, you know, flying with a group that included Craig and Kurt and, and maybe Robin and a bunch of really good pilots. And I was like, man, we are flying, we are flying like 52 miles an hour between thermals and this is not right. <laughs> so I, after a couple, I was like, this is just, this is just crazy. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to go 45. That seems a little more reasonable. And, and I tried it and you know what? It didn't, the change in polar at that at that speed just wasn't significant enough that when they hit that climb every single time I would get there and I'd be below where where I had started relative to them I would lose a little bit mm. I was like this just can't I don't this it's only 800 feet a minute I mean we're not supposed to go that fast and it just convinced me that that you know when you're with a group you got to stay with the group and it's kind of it's it's hard to outsmart a group that that's got, you know, half a dozen people and they're that good. So you just have to, you're not going to win the comp. You're not going to win the day in the first few thermals. Um, and, you, and you may not win the day at all, but you can do really well if you, if you stay with that group. And that sounds, you know, I hear a bunch of the, I hear a lot of these guys, especially on your show, like, you know, you know, you gotta fly with the group, gotta fly with the group. And I, and, and that's, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. And in, in my experience, you pretty much have to stick with those guys and you're not going to, you can definitely lose a comp um, on the first day and in the first thermal if you, or in that first glide if you try to outsmart the guys. I mean, there's. Mm. Y y let's say you do get away on that first or second or third thermal of the day. Let's say it's 15 thermal day. I mean, do you really want to get away from those guys? Yeah, right. <laughs> on the no, second thermal and be all alone. I mean, not. That's the wrong place really. to risk. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I don't want to be alone out there unless it's just the most epic day ever. And even then, you know, clouds are big and it's hard to hit the it's hard to hit the right part of the cloud on every single thermal consecutively all the way to the goal line. It's, it pays to have, to, to have people fanned out. Dustin, I, I, uh, I've already taken up way too much of your time, but I got to ask you one, one more question. Well, maybe, maybe a couple, but, uh, Jeff kind of, I know you're quiet about this, but Jeff spilled the beans to me that you're also a paraglider. I, I don't know how, how much you, you fly these days, but, uh, I would love to know, you know, the, because you are flying paragliders, you know, what, what are there, are there things that, that you brought from hang gliding that maybe wouldn't be obvious, you know, like the tips or advice or, uh, you know, from the years that you spent hang gliding, then now you're, you're doing some, some, some paragliding. You're like, Oh man, those guys should know this. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe back when I, you know, I started paragliding a long time ago. So back then it was, hang glider pilots outnumbered paraglider pilots here by far so i at that time maybe i thought we had something to share with them but you know the the combined now the combined community experience of the paraglider pilots is probably already a seat of the hang glider pilots experience so i mean you know it's the same thing you share with 
up and coming hang glider pilots is, you know, you just obviously need to once in a while, take a step back and check your ego and realize that we're, regardless of what we fly, we're all flying these basically super ultralight aircraft that they're pretty unforgiving. I mean, it's, I doubt any pilot out there doesn't know of somebody or many people in the community that have been, that have been hurt. Hmm. So, you know, in my mind, it would just be to just kind of check the passion once in a, once in a while and give the conditions a second thought here and there and just obviously show a, you know, high level of respect for something that's, that is fairly unforgiving compared to other activities we could be doing. You mentioned that, you know, you, you were pretty hopped up or, you know, kind of early on in your career about comps and stuff. And then that kind of waned, you know, you, you took a step back from like cat one and cat two and maybe a step back from all of it, you know, kind of together, you know, obviously 2012 was a, was a high moment, but if you had, um, if you had like, if you had lulls that are, I mean, I guess that's what those are is lulls, but it sounds to me like you still really have the passion for the sport. Um, and have you, have you kind of maintained that all the way through? And if not, you know, how, how have you been able to kind of come back to it? Yeah, I've still got it. I, I, it's, I have a, it, what in my mind is kind of like a calmer passion for it right now. I mean, I maybe more, maybe more appreciative for the, the process and the moment than the, I was pretty goal oriented back in the beginning and, and now I'm, I'm definitely process oriented and I enjoy all the things around it. And, you know, and in the moment, in the flight, I can, I look around and I'm like, well, this is pretty badass. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm enjoying myself here. Um, and so that with, you know, being a little calmer like that comes, uh, turning down certain days that I definitely would have flown in, you know, flown on when I was totally obsessed with, you know, I flew on some, ridiculous days and Shapiro can attest to that. We've flown in some ridiculous days during comps and just when we were generally more obsessed with the sport because it all worked out well for me, I wouldn't do anything differently, obviously, um, because the experience is huge. I mean, you you can't acquire that level of experience without being totally obsessed. And so I'm, I'm thankful for it. And that benefits my, my recreational flying now hugely. I mean, I, I, I fly you know, a little less often on my own now, but I fly and I fly tandems and, you know, I'm in the tow plane all the time down there at, uh, at our flight park here. And it just factors in, it, it definitely benefits all of my flying that, that experience with different conditions and different states of mind. I mean, I've, you know, especially during comps have flown in some pretty questionable states of mind and states of hangover or drunkenness. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> That, that just, I'm definitely calmer now and, and I'm thankful for the experience, experiences I had and, and also for my state of mind now. I, I feel, uh, yeah, just super thankful that I'm able to throw the glider on my car and go out and, 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 and am capable and flying in pretty much any condition. And it's just nice to know you can go out, you know, you're going to get up, you, you know, that's, that's that kind of experience and, and the skill level you get to from being in comps and being super obsessed is you know, that's kind of hard to get any other way. So yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that it worked out the way it did. Hmm. Is it, do you see it kind of potentially coming full circle? Or are you going to go back to sailplanes or may I, I no, 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 <laughs> no, <laughs> never. I, I mean, I, I still fly them once in a great while. And 
um, you know, a day off at a comp or whatever, if we're just bored. Uh, but no, it's far from, it's not even the same thing. It's m- much more closely related to an airliner than a hang glider. Huh. Cause I, I, I've never been in one and I, I, you probably heard that I did this podcast with Kevin Brooker and then we were talking about the Perlan project and I'm just fascinated now. I'm like, God, I got to get into that. But it's, it's just, is it so, it's so much different. It's, uh, it, it just doesn't, doesn't do the same thing for you. Yeah. My, in my experience in, in my own head, um, they're really cool to think about. It's, it's really cool to, uh, think about going out there and plan about going out there and, and, and getting those, getting in that thing. And it's, you know, they're awesome machines and you know, that kind of like distant perspective. Like if you're flying a model, looking at the thing, they're sexy. I mean, they're amazing. But uh, the second I close that canopy and I'm just getting Mm. baked in there, I not really, I'm not so into it. I mean, I like it. It's definitely better than a lot of other things you could be doing, but it's, I'm not passionate about it. And uh, Mm. I wouldn't, it would be no replacement for the flying that we do for sure. Okay, last one, and I promise. Uh, you, you you said early on that you, you know, maybe the only thing you would change in your in your flying career would be to not you know move up so fast on on wings. Um, but I, I love I love this question just because I, I think it brings out some fascinating stuff. But is that really true? Is it like if you could go back? to your 50 hour self. And, uh, I'm sorry. I know you've listened to this podcast a lot. This probably gets old, but I think no, it's, it's an interesting question to actually think to really think about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, would you, would that be the only thing you changed or, I mean, do you wish you would Man, have honestly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing in fear of changing everything. I, I mean, I, ah, I wouldn't want an alter, one. I wouldn't want to alter a single breath because what's the, ah, I dig it. Well, if you mean if you live by hindsight, we're not. That yeah, would apply to, I think you know, that's the, future, the best answer be we've gotten. Uh, <laughs> I, I dig it, man. That's awesome. That that reminds me of you know Will Gads. I used to ask this question. You know, like if you if you got to the pearly gates, what would you want God to say? And he said, eh, I, "I'm wrong. You get to do it over again. <laughs> you I'm not letting you in. Yeah, go, you back. go back." <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 I you know, honestly, I, I I would yeah out of fear of changing everything, I would change nothing. But, uh, I, but I'm not, not a hundred percent because I know that's, I've got somebody listening to this right now that is very close to me that I'm, that, that I'm, uh, helping introduce to the sport right now. And yes, do everything differently than I did. (laughs) Definitely, definitely, uh, you know, get the most beginner glider there is stick with it forever. And, uh, you know, just listen to what I say, not what I did. Right, right. Yeah, I, I am, I am not disappointed whatsoever that my significant <laughs> other, that Maddie, does not want to fly. I took her on a tandem, and she was like, "Yeah, whatever." I was like, "Perfect." Yes, Great. yeah, Great. you do a little yes. silent cheer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Dustin, awesome, man. This has just been uh, a blast. I'm so glad we were able to do this. And uh, thanks, man. Thanks for your time. I sure, really no appreciate problem. it. I think that's a good place to end. And uh, man, I got to get out to Arizona and, and fly with you. I've been watching your your stuff for years. That would be really cool. Absolutely, yeah. Any any time except summer. Don't come out here in the summer. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I, dude, I live in Sun Valley. I would just die. I'd get off the plane and you'd watch me melt. And you're like, oh, that, yeah. that's it. That's it for Gavin. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm well, sitting thanks, in my sound booth right now, and it's like probably it's probably 15 degrees. <laughs> oh well, yeah. Any any time in the winter, don't come in the summer. We won't be here. Right. But uh, yeah, you're, you. you're you're welcome anytime, man. We're, we're, we have a glider waiting for you. Awesome. Well, I'll come out. Cool, thanks, man. Dustin. Appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for having me. 
you got something out of this show, uh, please consider supporting the podcast. You could do it financially. All we've ever asked for is a buck a show. That'd be great. You could do that. You can find the links for supporting the show on cloudbasedmayhem.com, or you can support us through Patreon, where there's all kinds of rewards at various levels, and you can just kind of set it and forget it. There's also a lot of bonus material, including the recent Kriegel bonus and the one with me and the X-Helps and some other stuff. Uh, you can vote to have various people on the show all kinds of things there so that's patreon.com forward slash cloud based mayhem i don't want this to be a stretch though this is free material that always will be you know if this is if this is uh clipping your daily starbucks that's not what that's about and what we want you know if you can give great if you can't totally understand there are other ways to support it share it with your friends share it with the folks you're in the car with on the way up to launch uh, follow us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or any of those kind of things. That also really helps. And as always, it's just about getting it out there. So if you're enjoying the show, uh, pitch in, help us out, and we'll keep bringing more content to you. Thanks very much. We'll see you on the next one. Cheers.